The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ready to get cryptid? Turns out North America is a treasure trove of spooky legends and supernatural tales. There are hundreds of different American Indian tribes, and almost all of them have histories full of pre-colonization monsters and supernatural entities. From the well-known skinwalkers and thunderbirds to the lesser-known flying heads and stone giants, dive into a handful of these legends today. We're also going to dig a bit into the diversity of American Indian peoples, give a little lay of the land to help understand where all these stories come from, stories that seem to revolve mostly around cannibalism. Seriously, apparently cannibalism was rampant at one time in North America. We're going to be diving uh, mainly into the spaces or latest chosen topic today, the tale of the Wendigo. The Wendigo originates in the lore of tribes like the Chippewa, Ottawa, and Algonquin. Wendigo roughly translates to the evil spirit that devours mankind. Yeek. Not a friendly beast. There's a lot of tales out there regarding how one may become a Wendigo and what a Wendigo might do to you. And to find out more about it, you're just going to have to listen to today's Indian Folklore and Campfire Horror Edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. I'm Dan Cummins, worshiper of our own cryptid monster, Nimrod, follower of Lucifina and praiser of Bojangles. And you are listening to Time Suck. May Michael motherfucking McDonald's uh, sing all your troubles away. I think I added an S to his last name for some reason. It's just, it's McDonald, singular. Uh, thanks for continuing to rate and review, not just Time Suck during the ongoing pandemic, but also for uh, checking out and rating my recent stand-up special, Get Out of Here, Devil. You can watch it on Amazon. You can listen to it via iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and more. Thank you. Uh, currently looking like the Toxic Thought stand-up tour may resume, fingers crossed, uh, August 7th in Raleigh, North Carolina at Good Nights Comedy Club. Hopefully uh, the shows in Virginia Beach, Richmond, and Charlotte will follow and, uh, and everything else after that. We'll see. We'll see. News is changing every day. Right now, uh, it's looking hopeful. 
Uh, new transmission tea in the store at badmagicmerch.com. So many different products up at the ever-expanding shop. Now that Logan Keith, our designer, is in the building, uh, I, I get to watch him you know, create these uh, designs sometimes, and it's amazing. Uh, illustration, such a cool skill set to have. I've always admired it, right? Just being able to sit there and just look at a blank sheet, or I guess now it's like a, not a sheet of paper, it's like this big, uh, gigantic iPad-looking thing with an electronic pencil. Just sketch away, and ah, oh, it's amazing. Uh, also, we have a badass Wendigo t-shirt in the Scared to Death section of the store if you'd like some Wendigo merch after today's episode. Also at badmagicmerch.com. And that's all the announcements for today. Move, moving back into the real reason you're here extra quick today. Let's get to some show. There are a ton of different American Indian legends regarding all kinds of different creatures. Why are there so many different legends? Well, because there's so many different tribes, each with their own distinct histories and folklore. Let's take a look into the tribal makeup of North America before we dive into the legends today. Uh, I, was, I was a little ashamed of myself for knowing so little uh, about all of the uh, people who lived in this land before me, lived in the land I've lived in for my entire life. There's 568 different federally recognized American Indian tribes in just the United States alone. Over 500, so many different peoples. Now that all just get kind of lumped in together a lot of the time. Uh, 229 are located in the gigantic state of Alaska and the remainder spread throughout the rest of the U.S. The 2010 U.S. Census reported that there were 2.9 million people with pure American Indian ancestry and an additional 2.3 million people of mixed American Indian ancestry. The combined U.S. population in 2010 was 5.2 million American Indians. And these are just U.S. figures that don't take into account millions of additional American Indians who live in Canada, Mexico, Latin America, hundreds and hundreds of additional tribes. And then there are, you know, many, many more tribes in South America. Keep all that in mind today. You know, even though we're going to pop into Canada for some stories, we're primarily just focusing on legends from tribes located in the present day U.S. Who knows how many other legends are out there in the Americas? So how did all these tribes get here? Uh, we talked a bit about that two years ago in the Aztec suck. June of 2018. So much human sacrifice in that one. Aztecs loved a good sacrifice. They'd kill some kids in a, in a heartbeat to grow some corn. Uh, but it's been a while. Been a while. So let's revisit today how the various tribes of the U.S. made it to North America many thousands of years before Christopher Columbus's ships landed. In the Bahamas, a different group of people discovered America, the nomadic ancestors of modern uh, American Indians who hiked over a land bridge from Asia to what is now Alaska a little over 12,000 years ago. By the time European adventurers arrived in the 15th century CE, scholars estimated uh, that more than 50 million people already living in the Americas. Of these, some 10 million lived in the area that would later become the United States. As time passed, these migrants and their descendants pushed south and east, adapting to the climates and vegetation and animal life as they went. In order to keep track of these diverse groups, anthropologists and geographers have divided them into culture areas or rough groupings of contiguous peoples who shared similar habitats and characteristics. Most scholars break North America, excluding present-day Mexico and Central America, into 10 separate culture areas. The Arctic, the Subarctic, the Northeast, the Southeast, the Plains, the Southwest, the Great Basin, California, the Northwest Coast, and the Plateau. First up, the Arctic culture area, a cold, flat, treeless region, a frozen desert of sorts near the Arctic Circle in present-day Alaska, Canada, and Greenland, home to the Inuit people of the U.S., Canada, and Greenland, and the Aleut people of the Aleutian chain of nearly 70 islands arcing out from south-central Alaska over into Russian territory. The Inuit people have formerly been called Eskimos, 
that term now considered uh, pejorative by many, no longer seen as acceptable to use. Uh, both of these large groups of various tribes spoke and continue to speak dialects descended from what scholars call the Eskimo Aleut language family. It is okay to use the term Eskimo in the context of describing the language family there. Uh, both of these groups of northern tribes, and they have to deep down, right, at least deep down, be furious with their ancestors for not migrating further south when they decided to settle, right, don't they? Much like a lot of the present-day inhabitants of, you know, cities in northern Minnesota and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, gotta be a little bit pissed. Just come on, this frozen tundra? This place, this wasteland of icebergs and tundra and permafrost and temperatures that dropped to damn near 60 below zero in the winter without wind chill. That's where you wanted to settle down. You fucking kidding me? Sure, seals are tasty and igloos are pretty cool. But I could be, you know, picking myself a tasty-ass orange right now, walking over to a beach to peep on some naked ladies if you would have just kept moving south. I'd be pissed. Because it's, it's such an inhospitable landscape. The Arctic's population always been comparatively small and scattered. There are less than 8,000 Aleut people, less than 150,000 total Inuit people. Some of these people's ancestors, especially the Inuit in the northern part of the region, nomads, more nomads, just like the Mongols last week. Uh, they followed seals, polar bears, other game as they migrated across the tundra. In the southern part of this very northern region, the Aleut were a, a bit more settled, living in small fishing villages along the shore. The early Inuit and Aleut peoples had a great deal in common. Many lived in dome-shaped houses made of sod or timber, or in the far nor north, uh, literal ice blocks. Anyone else fascinated by people living in ice block igloos? Tribes would be, uh, begin building their igloos or snow houses by making bricks out of ice or snow. Inside would be a, a raised bed made out of loose snow, animal skins, and caribou furs. Sometimes a short tunnel would be constructed at the entrance to reduce wind right, and heat loss when the door would be opened. Animal skins or a snow block would be used for the door. They'd have a fire inside, a fire inside the igloo. That blows my mind. That's, that's so cool to me. The fire would slightly melt the inside of the walls, but not enough to destroy the igloo. Actually, it would make the structure stronger due to the walls continually like melting a bit, then refreezing, then melting a bit, then refreezing, right? So it's just like a solid, you know, block of ice. Uh, the independent blocks lean on each other or polish to fit to create a dome. And if built correctly, will support the weight of a person standing on the roof. And I could go on and on about igloos. I'd have to add uh, staying in an igloo hotel uh, to my bucket list. There are several in northern Scandinavia. Uh, back to Inuits and Aleuts. Inuit and Aleuts uh, used uh, seal and otter skins to make warm, weatherproof clothing, aerodynamic dog sleds, long, open fishing boats. Uh, they picked, in my opinion, a terrible place to live, but they did adapt incredibly and made the most of it. Still making the most of it. Uh, next culture area, the subarctic culture, a bit south from the uh, Arctic, mostly composed of waterlogged tundra, Swampy, piney forests, but not that kind of piney for longtime suckers. Not the, uh, look at here now, I got some pig, taste this pig, I already lick out of my woman's beard. Not that kind of piney. Uh, this area stretches across much of present-day inland Alaska and Canada. Scholars have divided this region's people into two language groups, the Athabascan speakers at its western end and the Algonquin speakers in the eastern end, including the Cree, the Ojibwe, and the uh, Naskapi. In the subarctic, travel might not have been as difficult as it was in the Arctic region, but still often difficult. People used toboggans, snowshoes, lightweight canoes to get around. I feel like I feel like when the snowshoe is one of your primary methods of travel. I don't know. You might you might consider moving, you know, south. You might consider going to a more hospitable climate. Again, this is my preference. Uh, like in the Arctic, 
population was more sparse than it was further south where life was, uh, you know, a little easier. <laughs> I know I sound like a, a dick here when I talk about this weather, but I've, just, I've traveled a lot. Like I've traveled a lot, a lot. And some climates are for sure better than others. Like when my kids are out of school, I don't plan on hanging out in Northern Idaho all winter long every winter like I do now. Oh, fuck. Get out. Let's get out of here during the cold, cold months. In general, the peoples uh, of the subarctic did not form large permanent settlements. Instead of small, uh, small family groups banded together as they followed herds of caribou. They lived in small, easy-to-move tents and lean-tos. When it grew too cold to hunt, they hunkered down in underground dugouts. The growth of the fur trade in the 17th and 18th centuries greatly disrupted the subarctic way of life. Suddenly, instead of hunting and gathering for subsistence, the, uh, the people you know focused on supplying pelts to European traders. Next culture area. Uh, the Northeast culture area, one of the first to have sustained contact with Europeans, stretched from present-day Canada's Atlantic coast all the way down to North Carolina and inland all the way to the Mississippi River Valley. Its inhabitants were members of two main groups, the uh, Iroquoian speakers. This included the uh, Cayuga, uh, Oneida, Erie, uh, Ona, Onondaga, Seneca, Tuscarora, most of whom lived along inland rivers and lakes in fortified, politically stable villages, and then there were the more numerous Algonquin speakers. These included the Pequot, Fox, Shawnee, uh, Wapanaog, Delaware, and Menominee, who lived in small farming and fishing villages along the ocean. There they grew crops like corn, beans, and vegetables. And uh, man, that was, that was a lot, of, that was a lot of, uh, tough for me to pronounce tribe names. I'm not going to lie to you. I strongly considered just saying, uh, and there were two main groups of tribes in the Northeast culture area, and then just moving the fuck along. But I feel like that would be disrespectful. I feel like it would be taking the easy way out, and so it tried to power through. And you know what? I'm a little bit proud of myself. Uh, the, the only time I almost really messed up is, uh, I might as well just share this. Whenever I say the word Menominee, I get the Muppet song stuck in my head. And that's, I'm not trying to, you know, it just, it's just the way it is. I'm not trying to be a dick again, but Menominee. Whatever. Uh, life in the Northeast uh, culture, often fraught with conflict. The Iroquoian groups tended to be rather aggressive and warlike. Bands and villages outside of their allied confederacies, never safe from their raids, only grew more complicated when European colonizers arrived. Colonial wars repeatedly forced the region's natives to take sides, pitting the Iroquois uh, against their Algonquian neighbors. As right, white settlement pressed westward, both sets of indigenous people were forced from their lands. Interesting thing to note about the Iroquoian tribes is how matriarchal many of them were. Hail Lucifina! Clan mothers possessed considerable economic and political power. Women met alongside male counterparts in leadership councils, helped make decisions regarding both war and peacetime activities. The Algonquian lived uh, in, in an amazing balance as well with nature around them. I think is really cool. When the weather was warm, they constructed portable wigwams, uh, huts with buckskin doors in certain areas. They'd grow corn, beans, and squash. In the winter, they'd erect longhouses, and multiple clans would live together, storing food supplies in semi-subterranean structures. In the spring, when the fish began to spawn, they'd leave their winter camps and build villages near sources of water, sources of the, of the fish. They'd make birch bark canoes, catch salmon, trout, bass, and more. Staying close to the coast, they'd hunt whales, porpoises, walruses, and seals. They'd gather scallops, mussels, clams, and crabs. Sounds fucking delicious. These guys, these guys are living. All summer long, they'd hunt migrating birds to harvest their eggs. Canada geese, does, more. July and August, they're gathering wild strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, and nuts. In the fall, they're hunting beaver, caribou, moose, white-tailed deer. Oh, so much delicious food. Meanwhile, you got some poor bastard up there in the Arctic Circle. He's fucking living on last year's seal. He hasn't seen a vegetable in 13 years. Next culture area, southeast culture area. 
north of the Gulf of Mexico and south of the Northeast, humid, fertile agricultural region. Many of its tribal residents, expert farmers growing maize, beans, squash, tobacco, sunflowers, and more that organize their lives around small ceremonial and market villages known as hamlets. Perhaps the most famous of the Southeastern indigenous peoples are the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole, some of whom spoke a variant of the uh, Muscogean language. Uh, Sadly, by this time, by the time the U.S. was its own nation, the Southeast culture area had already lost many of its native people due to disease and displacement. In 1830, the Federal Indian Removal Act compelled the relocation of what remained of the, uh, they're known as the five uh, five main tribes so that white settlers could have their land. Between 1830 and 1838, federal officials forced nearly 100,000 Indians out of the southern states into, quote, Indian territory, uh, present-day Oklahoma. The Cherokee called this frequently deadly trek the Trail of Tears. Got to do a suck on the Trail of Tears one of these days. Uh, Next culture area, so many different tribes, right? The Plains culture area comprises the vast prairie region between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, from present-day Canada all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Before the arrival of European traders and explorers, its inhabitants, speakers of uh, Suan, Algonquin, uh, Caduan, Udo-Aztecan, and Athabascan languages, relatively settled hunters and farmers. They became nomadic only after European contact. Right? After Spanish uh, colonists brought horses to the region in the 18th century, that's when groups like the Crow, Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Comanche, and Arapaho used horses to pursue great herds of buffalo across the prairie. Right, learning that really made me pause. I guess really relearning it because I know I knew it before, but I'd forgotten. Now, I've long associated American Indians with horses because that's what I've seen in movie after movie, TV show after TV show. You know, a lot of paintings and various artists, American Indians, warriors on horseback, fighting with other tribes, fighting with white settlers, the U.S. military, or hunting buffalo while on their horses. But horses, not indigenous to North America. Spanish colonialists, uh, colonialists brought the horses over. First introduced by the Spanish in 1519, they didn't make it to a, a lot of North America until the 17th and 18th centuries. So for thousands and thousands of years, American Indians lived with no horses. And then in the century or two, sometimes just in the final decades of their pre-reservation existence, only then did they have horses. So, you know, it's really just at the tail end there. Uh, the most common dwelling for Plains uh, Indians hunters was the cone-shaped teepee, a bison-skin tent that could be folded up and carried anywhere. I'd say it's the uh, dwelling probably most strongly associated with the uh, American Indian. Plains Indians also known for their elaborately feathered war bonnets. Historically, when American Indians have been represented in media and film and TV, uh, they have almost always appeared as Plains Indians. Next culture area, the peoples of the Southwest culture area lived in the vast desert region, present-day Arizona, New Mexico, along with parts of Colorado, Utah, Texas. uh, And they developed, you know, two distinct ways of life. Sedentary farmers such as the Hopi, the Zuni, the Yaqui, and the Yuma grew crops like corn, beans, and squash. Many lived in permanent settlements known as pueblos built out of stone and adobe. Some of these pueblos, multi-story dwellings resembling today's apartment buildings. At their centers, many of these people's uh, villages also had large ceremonial pit houses known as kivas. Other southwestern peoples such as the Navajo and the Apache, more nomadic. They survived by hunting, gathering, and raiding their more established neighbors for their crops. Because these groups were always on the move, their homes were much less permanent than the Pueblos. For instance, Navajo fashioned their eastward-facing roundhouses, known as hogans, uh, or hogans, out of materials like mud and bark. Sadly, by the time the southwestern territories became a part of the U.S., after the Mexican War, many of the region's native people had already been exterminated or displaced. 
Four more culture areas learn so much about the extent of diversity of American Indians right now. Uh, the Great Basin Culture Area, an expansive bowl formed by the Rocky Mountains to the east, the Sierra Nevadas to the west, the Columbia Plateau to the north, and the Colorado Plateau to the south, was a barren wasteland for the most part of desert, salt flats, and brackish lakes. Its people, most of, home, uh, most of whom spoke Shoshonean or Udo-Aztecan dialects like the Bannock, Paiute, and Ute, uh, they foraged for roots, seeds, and nuts, and hunted snakes, lizards, and small mammals. Because they were always on the move, they lived in compact, easy-to-build uh, wikiups made of willow poles or saplings, leaves, and brush. Their settlements and social groups were impermanent. Communal leadership, when it existed, was informal. After European contact, some Great Basin groups got horses and formed equestrian hunting and raiding bands that were similar to the ones we associate with the Great Plains tribes. Next up is California. It's its own, uh, you know, whole area here. Before European contact, the temperate, hospitable California culture area had more people, an estimated 300,000 in the mid-16th century than any other. Also more diverse, uh, estimated 100 different tribes and groups spoke more than 200 different dialects. California's pre-European linguistic landscape was more complex than that of Europe's. I had no idea. Would have never guessed that. Despite the great linguistic diversity, Many native Californians live very similar lives. Uh, they didn't practice much agriculture. Why not? Well, because they lived in a fucking utopia where nuts, roots, berries, various wild vegetables were plentiful. Most of California, the weather's incredible. Fish and game, plentiful. If the Arctic Inuits would have, would have been shown pictures and videos of how tribes in Southern California were living at the same time they were living, they would have smashed through the ice of whatever frozen lake or river or ocean they lived on or near just so they could drown themselves. California area tribes organized themselves into small family-based bands of hunter-gatherers known as uh, tribelets. Inter-tribelet relationships based on well-established systems of trade and common rights were generally peaceful. Examples of California area tribes are the uh, Kuruk, uh, the Maidu, the Kuya, Mojave, Yakuts, uh, Pomo, and Modoc. We've got two more areas now. Northwest Coast culture area along the Pacific coast from British Columbia to the top of Northern California has a wet, mild climate. Think Portland, Oregon, you know, Seattle, Washington, and an abundance of natural resources. The ocean and the region's rivers provided almost everything its original peoples needed. Salmon, whales, sea otters, seals, so many other kinds of fish and shellfish. As a result, unlike other hunter-gatherers who struggled to eke out a living or forced to follow animal herds from place to place, the American Indians of the Pacific Northwest were uh, secure enough to build permanent villages that housed hundreds of peoples apiece. Those villages operated according to a rigidly stratified social structure, more sophisticated than any other native culture uh, outside of Mexico or Central America. A person's status was determined by his closeness to the village's chief, reinforced by their number of possessions, blankets, shells, skins, canoes, even slaves. Goods like these played an important role in potlatches, elaborate gift-giving ceremonies designed to reaffirm class divisions. Some prominent groups in this region include the uh, Athapascan, Haida, Tlingit, uh, Pinutian, Chinook, Chimshian, Kus, and the Salish. Okay, last group. This is the one that encompasses where I live in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The Plateau Culture. The Plateau Culture area sat in the uh, Columbia and Fraser River basins at the intersection of the subarctic, the plains, the Great Basin, the California, and the Northwest Coast, present-day Idaho, Montana, Eastern Oregon, and Washington. Most of its people lived in small, peaceful villages along streams and riverbanks. They survived by fishing for salmon and trout, hunting and gathering wild berries, 
Yay, Idaho, Idaho huckleberries, yum, uh, roots, nuts. In the Southern Plateau region, the great majority spoke languages derived from the Penutian, the Klamath, Nez Perce, Walla Walla, Yakima, and others. North of the Columbia River, most spoke uh, Salishan uh, dialects, the Skitswish, aka Coraline tribe. My tongue gets going in like one type of pronunciation. Then when I flip back to like English, it's like it doesn't, it takes a second to catch up. Yeah, Skitswish, aka Coraline tribe, uh, Spokane, Kalispell tribes, many others. In the 18th century, other native groups brought horses to the plateau, and the region's inhabitants quickly integrated the animals into their economy expanding the radius of their hunts and acting as traders and emissaries between the Northwest and the Plains. So many different cultures, all thrown under the banner of American Indian. Oftentimes, one tribe is no more similar to another as, uh, say, Spaniards are to the Swedish or as the Irish are to the Italians. Before European settlement, uh, most you know tribes hadn't ever encountered any members from hundreds of other tribes. So many distinct groups with their own languages, traditions, lifestyles, and legends. Just wanted to illustrate that and use this suck to spread some knowledge about overall American Indian diversity before diving into some diverse American Indian legends. Hail Nimrod. Now we're going to bounce all over the place with different tales of cryptids that come from some of the tribes I just mentioned. Let's start with the one the Space Lizards voted for, the Wendigo. The legend of the Wendigo originates in the Northeast area of the present-day U.S. and from the Eastern and Central Southern regions of Canada, coming primarily from the Algonquian culture. Wendigos were once human beings transformed, usually irreversibly, into their monstrous conditions. In some cases, the transition was conceived as rapid, while in others, the condition could be covert and disguised. The legend varied, of course, from tribe to tribe, generally can be broken down into two basic versions. In version one, the Wendigo is a physical entity, a monster that stalks its prey viciously in the northern woods, desperate to sate its unfathomable hunger. Right, in version two, the Wendigo is a malevolent spirit that takes control of men's bodies, uh, cursing them with an incurable need to consume human flesh. It was said that this spirit can possess any person overcome with selfishness or greed. I get too greedy. Wendigo might show up in your dreams. And the spirit then leads the possessed person to commit acts of cannibalism. In both versions, the Wendigo is a monster who lives to feast upon human flesh. So what does the Wendigo actually look like? Well, surprisingly, very handsome, actually. This, uh, this really shocked me. Uh, in most legends, the Wendigo is a young, ambitious, well-built man, about six feet tall, with dark brown eyes, long, uh, beautiful, somewhat feminine eyelashes, silky, raven-black, long, romance novel-like hair. Uh, he's lean and muscular, with long legs, powerful thighs, a narrow waist, insanely defined six-pack abs, perfectly symmetrical pecs, uh, that always kind of appear post-chest workout pumped. Uh, bulging biceps, horseshoe, you know, triceps, all packaged nicely underneath his lightly tanned vascular skin. The Wendigo's buttocks are firm, but not so firm. They lose their juicy curviness. The Wendigo's shoulders are broad. The Wendigo has a back that's broad as well, broad enough to not just carry you, but also your problems, your burdens easily. The Wendigo's emotionally vulnerable, but not weak. <laughs> not, not weak, you know, sensitive, but not soft. When words flow out from between the Wendigo's full lips, perfect white teeth, and chiseled, slightly dimpled jaw, you hear the unmistakable voice of an alpha male, strong, assertive, but never once teetering into the realm of toxic masculinity. The Wendigo's penis is strong, but not intimidating, hard, but not aggressive. It's, it's, it's Goldilocks, his third bowl of porridge, just right, and you want to eat it all up. 
The Wendigo's balls are high and tight, but not constricted or small. While the Wendigo's heart may be pure and his mind may be clean, he is still absolutely capable of just the right amount of lust and just the right amount of thrust with a super clean wing. Have I made it weird enough yet? Is everyone thoroughly confused? Okay. All right, good. Uh, forget everything I said just the past few minutes. Uh, the Wendigo is nothing like I just described. Wendigo's a fucking monster. That's some handsome dude out of the woods. Uh, various legends describe the Wendigo as a tall, bony, humanoid-looking creature with long limbs, thin, elongated, claw-like fingers, terrifying face, and sharp teeth. This creepy cryptid stands as tall as a person most of the time, but according to legend, it can grow to a height of like 15 feet or even more as it devours more and more victims. If it could just focus, it could stop dicking around the woods and dominate the super heavyweight division of the UFC. The Wendigo has milky eyes that pop out of its sockets, eyes that look as if they're decomposing because, like most of the creature's flesh, they are kind of rotten away. The Wendigo's hair is wispy and sparse, hair of a corpse. It's been laying in the ground for weeks. It has skin as hard as a shield. In many recent stories of supposed Wendigo sightings, the creature now has elk horns, sometimes even a decapitated elk head resting atop its former human head. These details seem to uh, be pretty recent additions. Some, uh, some creepy pasta add-ons, maybe. Original legends don't seem to ever mention any elk-related features. In the book, The Manitos, the Manitos uh, documenting the oral traditions of his tribe, Chippewa author and ethnographer Basil H. Johnston describes the Wendigo this way, saying, The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out over its skin, its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into its sockets. The Wendigo looks like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it has are tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. So, not quite the romance novel cover description I laid out earlier. Now let's talk about its behavior, its fighting abilities. When does this monster hunt and how? Well, the Wendigo is a creature of the night. Some tales it lures its victims through its voice, victims who are never seen again. Other stories, the Wendigo appears to the victim, grabs the victim's hand, and makes the victim run alongside the Wendigo with long strides, evidence of which can later be found in the snow. Eventually, the human footprints in the snow disappear because the Wendigo has lifted his hostage into the air and devoured him. That seems like a very convoluted way to kill someone. Just, oh my God, please, no, don't, don't eat me, Wendigo. God, don't. What? Eat, eat you? No, calm down, buddy. What are you talking about? I just, I was kind of hoping that we could hold hands and just run through the snow for a while. You know, I was hoping that we could just be buddies and just run and stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. We can hold hands and yeah, just we'll just run through the snow like like buddies. Okay, that's, that sounds great. And after a while of them running, you know, the Wendigo's like, see, isn't this fun? We're just running through the snow like buddies, holding hands. And the guy's like, yeah, okay, I guess. And, you know, this is pretty fun. I'm, I didn't expect this. I'm getting a little bit tired, though. And the Wendigo's like, oh, I'm glad you said something. You should just let me pick you up and carry you for a bit. You know, I'm good. You know, it's, I mean, it's easier for me. I'm 15 feet tall. And I got long strides and everything. And, and then the Brave is like, oh, no, okay, okay, cool. No, thanks. And then the Wendigo just picks him up. No, not cool. Now I'm going to eat you, you dumb son of a bitch. I was never your buddy. <laughs> Now then the brave just dies thinking something along the lines of, why didn't he just fucking eat me right away? Like, what was, what was the point of the holding hands and running? Why, why I don't get it. 
uh, as, as, as I learned, you know, in other folk, folklore-based sucks, like in the Brothers Grimm and Baba Yaga episodes earlier this year, uh, sometimes these stories, uh, they don't make a lot of narrative sense all the time. More, more about moral lessons. Main lesson of the Wendigo is uh, don't be a cannibal. And more on that in a bit. Uh, the murderous abilities of the Wendigo vary considerably from legend to legend, tribe to tribe. Sharp nails, long fingers allow them to climb trees and scale walls in many stories. They're often supernaturally fast, but not always. Some stories, the Wendigo walks in like a haggard manner, you know, kind of falling apart, all rotten away. Creatures almost always powerful beyond the realms of any human strength. Their sense of smell far superior to the human, but their vision often actually worse. Uh, in most traditional stories, their vision is based on movement. If you stay real still, sometimes they can't see you. That sounds, that sounds terrible. That's your only option is just to stand still, just hope they don't see you or smell you. Uh, whether in the form of a physical beast or a spiritual entity, the Wendigo is a hard creature to escape from once it begins to hunt you. It's immune to the harshest climates, stalks its prey, can mimic human voices to trick you. One of its favorite tricks is to lure victims uh, you know, deep into the wilderness, get them lost, away from their party, then consume them or possess them. The Wendigo is a tough son of a bitch, only grows stronger with age. The longer a Wendigo walks the earth, the stronger its powers become. It can uh, eventually gain the ability to control the weather. You can do super cool shit like uh, turn everything around you to darkness before the sun's actually set to make it easier to confuse you and lure you away and eat you. An old Wendigo that's walked the earth for many, many years can control other creatures of the forest with its Wendigo mind. The beast master can summon predators, force them to strike on command. Its speed and strength also grow with age, as does its ability to heal itself. Basically, it's way tougher than Bigfoot. If Bigfoot and a Wendigo were squaring off in the octagon, you'd be a fool to put money on Big... Fuck Bigfoot! Especially if it's a super old Wendigo. Get out of here with your Bigfoot bullshit. Always bet on old Wendigo. Don't just bet on it beating its opponent. You know, bet on it eating its opponent. Uh, and why does the Wendigo want to eat you? Folklorists think because of the lessons... Uh, Wendigo tales were supposed to teach, mainly that cannibalism is immoral. You know, that you really, really shouldn't eat people. Sounds obvious now. Don't eat people. But cannibalism doesn't often come up in modern life, right? As an as a, as a option you're actually are thinking about. Doesn't come up as an act. Your circumstances really dictate that you, you should maybe engage in to stay alive. Now, most of us, you know, have uh, access to food, you know, or have food. Maybe not always the food we want, but something. Most countries, starvation, not a real concern right now. Not so hundreds and hundreds of years ago in North America when this legend began. No, not so back when you didn't have a freezer and a pantry to keep food stored in, when you couldn't go to Taco Bell for some cheap sustenance, when the government wasn't able to give people food stamps. Sometimes during a long, hard winter, you got real hungry. And fellow tribe members started looking less like buddies and more like snacks. Sometimes people ate each other. They ate each other often enough that eventually some tribal storyteller was like, enough, we can't keep eating each other. This shit's a real problem. We lost several braves and most of our kids this past winter to cannibalism. Now we might get our asses kicked by this tribe of river over. And if we eat more of our own people, we're not gonna be able to defend ourselves at all from anyone. Soon our tribe's not gonna be able to hunt or gather shit for the next winter ahead. We gotta think of a story. Something that revolves around how bad your life is gonna become if you eat, eat anybody. No more eating people at all. If you, now, from now on, if you eat people, you turn into a monster. Uh, cannibalism was truly once a widespread problem than the Algonquian tribes. Algonquian, I keep adding an uh in there. Algonquian tribes. And so it became spiritually forbidden to resort to this practice, even in times of great desperation. Children were taught that the dishonorable act of eating human flesh would invoke the spirit of the Wendigo. Anyone who practiced cannibalism, even out of extreme necessity, 
ran the risk of mutating into one of these terrifying creatures. Suicide or even starvation taught as being better than resorting to the atrocity of eating another. Other negative values associated with Wendigo tales are all kinds of excesses, such as gluttony. The Wendigo is a creature that never gets satiated. In many legends, it, right, its size just keeps increasing in proportion to what it eats. If it's six feet tall, this, this emaciated monster, and it finds you and it eats you after eating you, it's still not full. Now it's just like a nine foot tall monster, but still emaciated, still super hungry. That's the true curse of being a Wendigo. You're always starving. You could kill and eat an entire village and you're still crazy with hunger. All right, is there any way to become a Wendigo other than resorting to cannibalism? Yes, there is one other way. Library book late fees. If you forget to return whatever books you've checked out and they end up being more than two weeks overdue, there's about a 95% chance you're going to end up as a fucking Wendigo. So have a little bit of respect for your local library. No, uh, that's not the other way. The other ways you can be turned into a Wendigo uh, outside of cannibalism is by, is by having your mind taken over by a Wendigo. Mind control. They have a lot of powers. It's not fair. Wendigo can access your mind during a dream. They can curse you with an insatiable desire to eat human flesh. Remember I talked about that earlier, especially if you're like a greedy, gluttonous person and your dreams are more susceptible to, to Wendigo takeovers. If you're cursed in this manner, it's the duty of your other tribe members to kill you to save everyone else. According to anthropologist Marvin Harris, the legend of the Wendigo used here again to deal with another taboo action. Sometimes it is necessary to kill another tribal member. Harris says that priority killing in extreme environmental situations, such as during a harsh winter, was a necessary action for the survival of the tribe. Right? But a lot of people obviously didn't feel great about it. So this story also uh, helped them feel better about doing that. Just like you shouldn't commit cannibalism to survive the winter, sometimes you should kill off certain other tribal members to save the group. And legend deals with both of those issues. You, know, you don't start eating other tribe members all willy-nilly because then you're going to become a Wendigo. But also, you know, sometimes you do got to kill off other tribal members to, to keep everybody alive. You had to, right? You had to kill them. They, they, start, they started to turn into a Wendigo, right? The Wendigo found them in their dreams because they were thinking about, you know, eating people. And that's why you had to kill them. Uh, can you escape from Wendigo once it has its sights on you? Uh, some people do escape, but it's rare. Uh, the Wendigo, they're not fine to fire. So if you happen to like run away from one and you see like a forest fire in the distance and you can somehow get the forest fire in between you and the Wendigo, then yeah, yeah, you, can, you might be able to get away. That's, you know, probably not likely going to happen. Or if you, uh, if you'd like to take a flamethrower with you out in the woods, then that's going to help. But most people tend not to bring flamethrowers, you know, camping. So you're probably not gonna be able to do that. You can kill it like a werewolf with silver, but it's more complicated than just shooting it with a silver bullet. More on that in just a second. Most people uh, just get eaten. The best way you can avoid being killed by a Wendigo is just never, ever come into contact with a Wendigo. Just basically stay out of the woods. Uh, let's talk about that silver. To kill a gosh dang Wendigo, uh, you're going to need a lot of silver. The chief weakness of a Wendigo traditionally is its heart. The beast reportedly has a ticker made out of solid ice. No wonder it hates fire. It's going to melt its cold, cruel heart. Uh, it seems like an ice heart would be easy to destroy, right, at first. Like just get the thing running fast after you get it to start sweating and then bye-bye ice heart. <laughs> Good luck pumping hate through your monster veins with your water heart, you ugly son of a bitch. But it's not that simple. It's heart is made out of some kind of evil wizard magic ice. According to one source, if you stab a Wendigo in its heart with a silver blade or shoot it with a silver bullet, you've weakened it, but not killed it. You're not done yet. Now you have to remove the ice heart from the Wendigo's body. Then you got to shatter the ice heart with like a silver hammer or something. Source wasn't real clear on that. Then you have to pull all the little pieces. After you shatter it, then you got to you got to sweep up all the little pieces. And you got to put them inside a silver box. Then you have to bury the silver box in a graveyard, and you have to dismember and cut up its body and scatter and burn it 
you know, and then scatters ashes in several different directions. It's a, fu- it's a huge pain in the ass to kill a Wendigo. If you're facing several Wendigos, the best thing you can do is just let them eat you, right? Because otherwise, yeah, it's so much fuck. It's a lot of hassle. It's a lot of work. How seriously was this legend taken by most American Indians? Uh, it varied, as one would expect from tribe to tribe, but pretty seriously by many. Uh, serious enough by one tribe, or seriously enough by one tribe in Canada that in the early 20th century, uh, people started to call upon this pair of Wendigo hunters to kill tribe members they thought were turning into Wendigos. It is a crazy story, but I'm going to tell in just a little bit. Uh, a lot of tribes took the Wendigo taboo so seriously that during uh, times of famine, a ceremonial dance would be performed to remind people to stay vigilant against any thoughts of cannibalism, right? So that no one would bring a Wendigo into the village. Some of these ceremonies were once performed on the shores of Lake Wendigo, a small lake on Star Island in northern Minnesota. Lake was named after this creature, by the way, not vice versa, just to be clear. Uh, so when did the legend of the Wendigo uh, make the leap into the imaginations of people who were not American Indians? For the next few minutes, this information may be a little repetitive for creeps and peepers who listen to the Scared to Death podcast I do with my wife, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay. Uh, we told some Wendigo horror tales in episode 37 of Scared to Death, the episode titled The Death Room, if you want to check that out. Uh, the first written description of a Wendigo comes from the early 17th century account of a Jesuit priest written when a group of French Jesuit missionaries were traveling to the present-day Canadian province of Nova Scotia. The priests interacted with American Indian tribes attempting to spread Catholicism. And they learned of the Wendigo. And one priest wrote in 1611, What caused us greater concern was the intelligence that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death in the previous winter in a very strange manner. These poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual amongst the people we were seeking. They were afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, and a combination of all these species of disease which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey. And the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. Well, he doesn't name the Wendigo here. Uh, the priest obviously referring to the Algonquian legend. Algonquian, I keep putting the uh in there. Uh, the first time the Wendigo mentioned by name in print might come from a December 1879 account of the first man to be uh, hanged in the province of Alberta. On December 20th, 1879, a Cree man known as Swift Runner was hanged for the murder of his wife, mother, uh, excuse me, wife, mother-in-law, brother, and six children. Swift Runner was a Cree hunter, trapper from the country north of Fort Edmonton. He and his family lived in the woods near Fort Saskatchewan. He was a big dude, roughly six foot three inches tall, well-liked, mild-mannered, thought by those who knew him to be a considerate husband and a good father. And then things got real fucking weird in the winter of 1878-1879. In the fall of 1878, he left Fort Saskatchewan with supplies and his family to hold up for the winter out in the woods. And then in the spring of 1879, he returns to the fort alone. And then he's asked, obviously, uh, what the hell happened to your family? When he doesn't provide a good answer, his uh, in-laws contact the Northwest Mounted Police, who had been in the West for only five years. Swift Runner first claimed to the police that his uh, wife, brother, mother-in-law, and six kids died of starvation. 
The police at Fort Saskatchewan, uh, however, couldn't help but think this was a little odd. Uh, that although his family had supposedly starved, Swift Runner looked like he hadn't missed a meal all winter. Inspector uh, Ganon was given the task of investigating Swift Runner's behavior, and he and a small party of policemen trekked out to the trapper's camp. When they got to a spot near his camp, Swift Runner showed them a small grave, said that one of his boys had fallen ill, died during the winter, and was buried there. Ganon and his men opened the grave, found the bones undisturbed. So far, no reason to arrest this man. But then found a whole bunch of other human bones scattered around the encampment. Uh, they investigated his cabin, discovered the grisly remains of his family, the bones of children who had clearly been butchered and picked clean of meat. Some bones even had the marrow hollowed out. When Ganon picked up a skull, Swift Runner told him that was his wife's skull. Then after a brief pause, he told them he had killed everyone but the son who died of illness. He told them he'd become haunted by terrible dreams. And that in one of these dreams, a Wendigo spirit told him he must kill and eat his family. He said he resisted, but the Wendigo crept further into his mind and took control of him. Finally, one day when he woke, he was no longer Swift Runner. He was the Wendigo. And then Swift Runner did a bunch of super fucked up stuff. As the Wendigo, first he killed and began to eat his wife. Then he demanded that one of his sons kill another one of his sons, kill his own brother. Things continued to get more grotesque. And it was all, according to Swift Runner, uh, the Wendigo's fault. After eating some of his own son, Swift Runner, I mean the Wendigo, uh, hung his infant son by his neck from a lodgepole, pulled down at the baby's dangling feet until he asphyxiated him. Then he ate his own baby. He admitted to the police he'd eaten his other boys, his brother, even his mother-in-law. And supposedly, I'm, <laughs> I'm not making this up, supposedly he told the officers that his mother-in-law tasted, quote, a bit tough. <laughs> when I first read that detail, it made me laugh so hard. <laughs> I just pictured these, uh, I just pictured this whole scene. Like, why would, why would he say that? Why, why would he single out his mother-in-law as being a bit tough? I just pictured like these officers, you know, they're staring at him, transfixed as they listen to the horror pouring out of his mouth. You know, these details of the goriest, most disturbing crime they had ever encountered. They're shocked, obviously, that a man could do this to his family. The mood had to have been extremely tense. And then it's like Swift Runner tried to break the tension by making some kind of dark mother-in-law joke. Yes, it's true. I killed and ate my entire family. I ate my own children. I even ate my baby. And they were all, honestly, delicious. Except my mother-in-law. <laughs> I mean, you get it. She was a bit tough in life. No surprise. Bit tough to chew and swallow. <laughs> uh, and real tough coming out the other side if you catch my drift. Just when I thought she was finally done ripping me a new asshole. <laughs> Come on. I know this is some dark shit, but funny's funny. Uh, so the revolted mounted police party hauls Swift Runner and the mutilated evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan. Uh, Swift Runner's trial began on August 8th, 1879, and the judge and jury did not entertain the possibility that some Wendigo spirit was responsible for everything that had happened. Swift Runner was quickly found guilty of murder, and Magistrate Richardson sentenced him to be hanged. Although the Hudson's Bay Company had once hanged an employee for murder, this was the first formal execution in Western Canada. Based on these tales of cannibalism in the early 20th century, the term Wendigo found its way into the Western medical vocabulary. The legend lent its name to a disputed psychiatric disorder, one not listed in the DSM-5, known as the Wendigo psychosis. This disorder, uh, not really believed in today by many, uh, characterized by the sometimes uncontrollable craving to eat human flesh 
even when other food is nearby. All right, now let's dig into some of the best Wendigo stories we could find. I'll start with the first piece of Western fiction written about the Wendigo. Then I'll lay out some Wendigo stories that come straight from the oral storytelling traditions of the Ojibwe people, the second largest group of American Indians in Canada, an Algonquin band of tribes, also known as the Chippewa. And we'll go over various tales of supposed Wendigo sightings, think Sasquatch sightings. Then I'll end our story examples with a tale of a real-life Wendigo hunter. After that, we'll examine how the Wendigo still shows up in contemporary culture before bouncing on over to look at some additional American Indian folklore legends. All right, the first time the Wendigo jumped into the world of literature was in 1910, when British horror author Algeron Blackwood wrote a horror novella titled The Wendigo. Famed fantasy horror and sci-fi author H.P. Lovecraft said of this story, Another amazingly potent, though less artistically finished tale than Blackwood's The Willows is The Wendigo, where we are confronted by horrible evidences of a vast forest demon about which Northwood's lumbermen whisper at evening. Uh, here is a summarized telling of this tale. Dr. Cathcart and his nephew, divinity student Simpson, traveled to northwestern Ontario to hunt moose. They are joined by local guides Hank Davis and Joseph Defago, and a camp cook called Punk. Dr. Cathcart and Simpson are Scottish. Cathcart loves to pontificate and discuss the nature of man. Simpson is a young, wide-eyed, young uh, youth excited for a new adventure. Davis is constantly cursing, rough around the edges, the master of the wilderness. Defago is a French-Canadian, wilderness master, and the guy who likes to talk about his fur-trading ancestors all the time. Punk's an American Indian of indeterminate nation. He's reserved, serious, and superstitious, with animal-keen senses. He's a stereotype. This is written in 1910 after all. Moose being hard to find in October, the hunting party goes a week without finding a single trace of the beasts. Davis suggests they split up and he and Cathcart head west. Simpson and Defago head east to a place called Fifty Island Water. Defago's not thrilled. He hints at there being something wrong with Fifty Island Water and Davis tells the Scottish hunters his friend is just scared over some old fairy tale. Obviously a little foreshadowing of the Wendigo here. Defago declares he's not afraid of anything in the wild and agrees to travel east to Fifty Island Water. While the others sleep the night before splitting up, Punk senses something in the air. He literally creeps to the lakeside to sniff the air and detects a faint odor, utterly unfamiliar, in the wind. And yes, he's being depicted as some kind of savage animal with heightened senses. Not good at speaking words, but real good at sniffing out monsters. No bueno. <laughs> Awkward. Again, written in 1910. Simpson and Defago's trip to the next day. The next day is taxing but uneventful. They camp on the shore of a great body of water. Simpson's impressed by the sheer scale and isolation of the Canadian wilderness. By the campfire that night, Defago is alarmed by an odor Simpson doesn't detect. This is when he first mentions the Wendigo, the legendary monster of the north, fast as lightning, bigger than any other creature in the bush. Later that night, Simpson wakes to hear Defago sobbing in his sleep. He hears a strange voice crying Defago's name from the darkness. The guide answers the call while rushing from his tent, out into the dark wilderness. After he disappears, Simpson hears the guide cry out, My feet of fire! My burning feet of fire. This height and fire is speed. Pretty sure that phrase was scary in 1910. The bar for horror is probably a little bit lower than it is now. After yelling his weird burning feet gibberish, he grows quiet, too quiet. There's an uncomfortable silence and then Simpson smells something. Everybody's smelling something in this story. Wendigo, he's apparently a real stinky motherfucker. There's a reason no cologne has ever been named after that musky beast. No one's spraying a little Wendigo down south before they go out clubbing. Simpson will later describe what he smells as a composite of lion, decaying leaves, earth, and all the various scents of the forest. 
He runs after Defargo and by the moonlight finds his tracks in the new fallen snow. Next to his tracks, and there are big monster Wendigo tracks. Tracks left by a giant animal, running with a long and powerful stride. He wonders how Defargo could match these monstrously great strides. He doesn't know, obviously, that the Wendigo likes to hold your hand and run with you for a while through the forest before picking you up and eating your ass. He doesn't know that the Wendigo has a super specific uh, weird kill ritual. And he sees Defago's tracks gradually morph into miniature duplicates of the beast tracks. Huh? And the tracks end as if their makers have taken flight. High above and far away, Simpson then hears Defago's complaint about his burning feet of fire. Now, I kind of take back what I said earlier about the Barbie and Lower. It's kind of creepy, talking about his burning feet. Story then cuts to the next day. Simpson returns alone to the base camp. He tells Cathart... Cathcart, what he saw, Cathcart assures him that the monster must have just been a bull moose Defago chased. Cathcart and Davis accompany Simpson back to 50 Island Water to look for Defago. They can't find any trace of him and fear he's run off to his death. Then it's night again. Sitting around the campfire, Cathcart tells everyone the legend of the Wendigo. He tells them how according to this legend, it summons its victims by name and carries them off at such speed that their feet burn to be replaced by feet like its own. And he adds a super weird detail. He says that the Wendigo does not eat his victims. He says they only eat moss. Did not see that plot twist coming. The old, it's a moss Wendigo. It's a little known variant of the Wendigo that prefers uh, moss to human uh, flesh. Overcome with, never mind the moss part, overcome with grief. Davis then yells for his old partner. He cries out, something huge flies overhead and Defago's voice drifts down to them. And then they all hear something crashing into dark branches overhead, followed by a thud into the frozen ground in the black distance. Moments later, they see Defago. He yells at them, please give me some moss. Hurry, I'm starving for moss. Boil me some moss chili up already. Someone make me a moss biscuit or something. He doesn't yell any of that. Daggers into camp, wasted caricature, face more animal than human, smelling of lion and forest. He is now a Wendigo. Some kind of fucked up Mars Wendigo, but still a Wendigo. Davis declares this isn't his friend of 20 years. Cathcart demands an explanation of Defago's ordeal. Defago whispers he's seen the Wendigo. He's been with it. Before he can say more, Davis howls for the others to look at Defago's fucked up feet. Simpson sees dark, inhumane masses before Cathcart throws a blanket over them. The feet of a monster. Moments later, a roaring wind sweeps the camp and Defago blunders back into the woods. From a great height, his voice trails off, My burning feet of fire! Then the next day, after all this foot talk, Davis, Simpson, and Cathcart return to the base camp and find the real Defago alone, trying to build a fire. His feet? They are now frozen. He seems delirious. A shell of his former self. Blackwood lets the reader know that his body will linger only a few weeks more. And what about Punk? Where has Punk been this whole time? Punk's long gone. He saw Defago limping toward camp, preceded by the smell of the Wendigo, and he bounced to get the fuck out. He knew Defago had seen the Wendigo and that the Wendigo had broken him and left him to die. The end. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, I, didn't say, I didn't say it was a great story. I said it was the first fictional story written about the Wendigo. No mention of cannibalism. Well, uh, why is that? Well, I'm guessing probably because people back in 1910 were even more irrational and easily outraged than people are today. They probably would have demanded that the book be burned for being obscene. If, it, if, you know, they wrote about how Defago was ripping fellow hunters limb from limb and eating their flesh. Why, never! The indecency! The obscenity! The godlessness of this tale! We must think of the children. What will the children do if they are to read this? Why, they will start eating each other immediately, of course! 
The children will eat us all if their innocent eyes ever see this filthy heathen drivel. Uh, in this book, Blackwood refers to the hunters as various Nimrods. Thought that was kind of cool. Nice little Wendigo Nimrod connection. Hail Nimrod. Our great space Sasquatch deity clearly revealing himself to be spiritually connected to the Wendigo. Uh, okay, now let's dig into some original uh, Ojibwe Wendigo tales dating back to who knows when, right after a quick little sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Now time for some Ojibwe Wendigo tales dating back to uh, who knows when. Uh, We really don't have any idea when these stories originated due to the oral storytelling tradition of the Ojibwe peoples. No name or dates are assigned to any of these stories that have been passed down from one generation to the next for an untold amount of time. First story is called The Ojibwe Who Slew the Wendigo. Long ago, the Ojibwe people were sick. A terrible epidemic was killing them. There was a man called Odaman who got sick and died. In death, he traveled west to where it's more beautiful than the sunset. When he got to the river that he would have to cross to the other side, the spirits asked him, Why are you grieving, Odaman? He answered, Because my people are dying. The spirits told Odaman that he was to return to the Ojibwe. He was to tell them that their teacher was coming to teach them about the good life. Their teacher would bring to the Ojibwe their rituals and ceremonies to help them get over the hills in their lives, those sad and traumatic times that all experience. Over the years, the Ojibwe experienced many traumas. That is the way of the Wendigo. A story is told of the Wendigo running amok amongst their people and killing them. There had been thousands of Ojibwe in many villages before the Wendigo came. The Wendigo was killing everyone, So an Ojibwe man challenged the Wendigo to a race. If the Ojibwe man won, the Wendigo would leave. They raced, and the Ojibwe man lost. After that, the Wendigo continued killing their people. As the Wendigo continued to kill the Ojibwe people, another Ojibwe man had a dream that he could defeat the Wendigo. In his dream, he talked to a grandma who shared a story. She told the man that she had traveled around to find out who was left. She had gathered the remaining Ojibwe children and took them with her and made them practice running upon a lake back and forth all day long, day after day, in preparation for the next race with the Wendigo. Fuck yeah, Grandma gets it. You gotta train. You gotta put in some gym hours. If you're gonna hope to defeat a Wendigo, you can't just roll up to the track, you know? No preparation, expect to beat a monster. Big-ass, 15-foot-tall, crazy-ass, you know, rotten thing. You gotta pop off the blocks to beat that bitch. Uh, And then the story goes... There were 15 children remaining, and each time a race occurred, another child died. Ow. Okay, that's a bummer. Okay, well, you know, maybe Grandma didn't have some, you know, good kids to work with. Training can only take you so far, you know, if you don't have some natural talent. It says Grandma would be the last one to race the Wendigo. 
And then I think she dies because she doesn't show up again in the story. So that's that's a bummer. It is a dream, after all. Uh, you know, dreams are weird. Uh, the dude having this dream, now all of a sudden he's racing the Wendigo and he wins. Yes. And the Wendigo dies. Because that's what happens in this weird dream race. It's a, it's a dream death race. First place gives you, uh, I don't know, uh, bragging rights. And second place gives you death. First place gives you life. Second place gives you death. Now the Wendigo's brother, another Wendigo, demands to race the man. And the Ojibwe man whoops his ass too. This guy's grease lightning. But this Wendigo, he doesn't die right away. He begs the Ojibwe man for mercy, but the Ojibwe man doesn't give him any mercy. He calls him a liar and he kills him too. And then the Ojibwe man races around the land of his people and he slays many other Wendigos. They had a regular Wendigo infestation he had to take care of. And that is a terrible infestation, right? That's hard to find an exterminator to take on that job. I mean, you call up and ask, you know, someone to come out and handle your termite infestation. Yeah, no, no problem. Of course, we'll be right there. Ants, yeah, you got it, bud. I'll see you, see you tomorrow. Wendigos, click. Hello? Hello? Uh, the Ojibwe man killed all but a few Wendigos. Some ran away to the north. Probably how the White Walkers showed up in the north. And then the story ends with the Ojibwe man giving the Ojibwe children their Ojibwe names so the world would now know who they are. The end. So what is the story about? I think it's less about monsters and more about being a strong people, not losing your identity, not letting some oppressor kill your people. Pretty sure the Wendigo symbolizes the white man in that tale. So I feel awkward as a white man saying that, but I think it's true. <laughs> Let's move along to the next Ojibwe story. This is the Wendigo and the baby. Uh, it's a lot like that movie, Three Men and a Baby, except it's completely different in every single way. That's how this story goes. One winter, a newly married couple went hunting with the other people. When they moved to the hunting grounds, a child was born to them. One day as they were gazing at him in his cradle board and talking to him, the child spoke to them. They were very surprised because he was too young to talk. Where is that sky spirit? Asked the baby. They say he is a very powerful, or they say he is very powerful and someday I'm going to visit him. His mother grabbed him and said, you should not talk about the Manitou, the Manitou that way. Manitou, by the way, powerful spirit. The Ojibwe religion focused on the belief in power received from spirits during visions and dreams. Manadu would be a spirit synonymous kind of with, uh, I don't know, like Odin from Norse mythology or the Holy Ghost in Christianity. A few nights later, they fell asleep again with the baby and his cradleboard between them. In the middle of the night, the mother awoke and discovered that her baby was gone. She woke her husband and he got up, started a fire, and looked all over the wigwam for the baby. They searched the neighbor's wigwam but could not find it. They lit birch bark torches and searched the community looking for tracks. At last, they found some tiny tracks leading down to the lake. Man, tiny talking baby just got up and walked his little itty bitty ass off right out of the wigwam down to the lake. That's a tough kid to raise. Halfway down to the lake, they found the cradle board and they knew that the baby himself had made the tracks, had crawled out of his cradle board and was headed for Manadu. The tracks leading from the cradle down to the lake were large, far bigger than human feet, and the parents realized that their child had turned into a Wendigo, the terrible ice monster who could eat people. They could see his tracks where he had walked across the lake. Man, that's the fucking worst when your baby turns into a Wendigo. That's a rough, rough day as a parent. I'll, I'll take a crying, screaming, colicky baby over a Wendigo cannibal baby any day of the week. The sky spirit Manadu had 50 smaller Manadog, or little people, to protect him. Uh, the Manadogs are lesser deities. When one of these Manadogs threw a rock, it was a bolt of lightning. As the Wendigo approached, the Manado, or Manadu, heard him coming and ran out to meet him, and they began to fight. The Manadogs knocked him down with a bolt of lightning. The Wendigo fell dead with a noise like a big tree falling. 
As he lay there, he looked like a big Indian, but when the people started to chop him up, he was a huge block of ice. They melted down the pieces and found in the middle of the body a tiny infant, about six inches long, with a hole in his head where the manadog had hit him. This was the baby who had turned into a wendigo. If the manadog had not killed it, the wendigo would have eaten the whole village. The end. Ugh, fucked up story. Right? Baby turned into a Wendigo, then some rock-throwing minor god hit the Wendigo with lightning and killed it. And then inside the Wendigo, they find the baby, which at first sounds like it's going to be some really good news. Then it quickly turns into like what looks like bad news because the baby has a hole in his head and the baby's dead. But that's actually the best news because the hungry cannibal baby was about to, you know, eat everyone in the village. So it's an emotional roller coaster. I think the moral of that story is sometimes you got to kill a baby, you know, to keep, uh, keep everybody else happy. I'm going to read that one to my kids. I'm going to remind them that sometimes in life, hard decisions have to be made. You know, sometimes you got to do what you feel is right to protect the greater good. And I'm just going to stare at them quietly for an uncomfortable amount of time and just maintain eye contact and just kind of slowly back out of their rooms. Uh, one more original Wendigo legend. No babies get killed in this one. So that's, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No baby killing. Uh, it's called the Wendigo and the Girl. The villagers realized a Wendigo was coming when they saw a kettle swinging back and forth over the fire. No one was brave enough or strong enough to challenge this ice creature. I get it. No, I wouldn't be the first to volunteer to fight some ugly Wendigo. After they'd sent for a wise old grandmother who lived at the edge of the village, the little grandchild, hearing the old woman say she was without power to do anything, asked what was wrong. While the people moaned that they would all die, the little girl asked for two sticks of peeled sumac as long as her arms. She took these home with her while the frightened villagers huddled together. That night it turned bitterly cold. The child told her grandmother to melt a kettle of tallow over the fire. As the people watched, trees began to crack open and the river froze solid. All this was caused by the Wendigo as tall as a white pine tree coming over the hill. I knew there were the White Walkers from the Game of Thrones. With a sumac stick gripped in each hand, the little girl ran to meet him. She had two dogs which ran ahead of her and killed the Wendigo's dog. They have dogs sometimes, I guess. But still, the Wendigo came on. The little girl got bigger and bigger until when they met, she was as big as the Wendigo himself. That's nice. That's what the last story was missing. A little girl who could change size at will. I'm hoping the stick she was holding grew with her. Otherwise, you know, now she'd be big, but she'd have two little teeny tiny sticks. I feel like everybody knows you need more than two teeny tiny sticks, you know, to defeat a Wendigo. With one sumac stick, she knocked him down. With the other, she crushed his skull because the sticks had turned to copper. Boom! Copper stick trick. Didn't see that coming. After she killed the Wendigo, the little girl swallowed the hot tallow and gradually grew smaller until she was herself again. That's how you move around size. Uh, tallow. Okay. All right. That's why, that's why I haven't been able to shift in size at will. Not enough tallow in my diet. Not enough hard, fatty animal tissue and suet getting eaten. Everyone rushed over to the Wendigo and began to chop him up. He was made of ice, but in the center they found the body of a man. I was expecting a baby again. With his skull crushed in. The people were very thankful and gave the little girl everything she wanted. The end. Was, okay. All right. That's a good story. Little girl lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, way better ending than the last tale. If I'm sitting around the campfire, I'm listening to the shaman. Tell me some stories. That's the one I want to end on. Okay? That's the one I want to hear right before I fall asleep. Not the dead baby one. If you're thinking, I don't, I don't know. I kind of... I kind of prefer the, the dead baby story. I'm worried about you. Right. Uh, now let's talk about some supposed Wendigo sightings. Any chance these legends are based on, uh, you know, a real creature? Uh, yeah, sure. Possible. Possible in the way that theoretically unicorns and Sasquatches are possible. And the odds aren't very good, but technically possible. 
No one has presented scientific proof of a Wendigo, but there have been a lot of alleged sightings. Wendigo allegedly made a number of appearances near a town called uh, Roseau in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s to the 1920s. According to legend, each time a sighting was reported, an unexpected death followed. And then finally, it was seen no more. Uh, Roseau, very interesting little town, way up in northern Minnesota. Just over 2,000 people, just over 10 miles from the Canadian border. Uh, been around since roughly 1900, always been tiny. A ton of notable people have come out of this little frozen village. So many good hockey players. By my count, eight former NHL players have come from Roseau. Former NFL head coach for the Packers and the Patriots. I mean, a long time ago, Phil Bankston uh, grew up there. Several politicians from Roseau. Uh, even an actor, model, uh, Kirsten Dunst's ex-boyfriend, Garrett Hedlund. He's from Roseau. It's crazy. Uh, a lot of Wendigos have supposedly been seen in northern Ontario over the years. There's a cave in northern Ontario called the Cave of the Wendigo. On Lake, oh boy, I couldn't find anything for this one. This is a tricky one. Lake uh, Mamigwest, I don't know, uh, near the town of Kenora. Inside this cave is a series of strange cave paintings of large, hairy co or hair-covered men believed uh, to resemble the mythological creature of the Wendigo. The Wendigo has been spotted by traders, trackers, trappers, and more in this area for decades. Uh, the vast majority of supposed Wendigo sightings uh, have occurred between the 1800s and the 1920s. Few reports. They've been trickling down to very little reports, you know, uh, in recent years. If you want a real scary recent Wendigo sighting story, you got to listen to episode 37 of my Scared to Death podcast. Cross promotion! Deal with it! Showbiz! Uh, where has the Wendigo gone? Maybe the Wendigo uh, is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's even better at hide and go seek than Bigfoot. Uh, fewer sightings doesn't convince believers that this monster isn't real. Those who believe in the physical Wendigo think he's still out there in the woods. But underneath that terrifying flesh-eating demon, there, there might still be a human man who was once just a hungry hunter. And now let's talk about a story I, I teased earlier. Let's talk about a real-life pair of uh, Wendigo hunters. This story is bananas. Not sexy bananas, regular old bananas. Jack Fiddler, also known as Zwanhu Gizago Gabao, best I can do with that. Uh, he, he, he who stands in the southern sky was a Cree man born in either the 1830s or the 1840s. Belonged to the Sucker Clan of Sandy Lake. Not adding sucker in there for like time suckers. It belonged to the Sucker Clan of Sandy Lake on the upper reaches of the Seven River or Severn River, River excuse me, in northwestern Ontario. He was renounced, renowned amongst his people for his healing abilities and for his power to fight all evil spirits. Fiddler and his brother, uh, Pescaquan, aka Joseph Fiddler, self-proclaimed Wendigo hunters who literally traveled around Eastern Canada looking for people who were supposedly consuming human flesh and killing them. Not kidding. People would seek out these dudes when they got afraid that their family members or neighbors were turning into one of these monsters and then Jack and Joseph would put them down. Supposedly, this pair of men killed 17 Wendigos. Or if you don't believe in the Wendigo, they killed 17 innocent people who thought they were Wendigos. Or who other people thought were Wendigos. Uh, Jack and Joseph even killed their own brother, Peter, when he supposedly was about to turn into a Wendigo when the brothers ran out of food on a trading expedition. Maybe Peter was starting to turn into a Wendigo or maybe he just got really hungry and he forgot that he had two psychotic brothers. We should never talk about that too. Uh, by 1907, word of the brothers' Wendigo killings reached the Northwest Mounted Police. A patrol was dispatched to investigate. On their travels, the Mounties learned of a woman suspected of being possessed by the creature. She had been choked to death with a piece of string by Joseph and Jack. The brothers were arrested and charged with murder on June 15th. After 15 weeks of captivity, uh, Jack escaped, fled into the woods, and hanged himself. 
Did he think he might be starting to turn into a Wendigo? Did he kill himself to keep him transforming into a monster? I wouldn't doubt it. His brother Joseph's trial began a week later. He was quickly found guilty, ordered to hang as well. Following Joseph's conviction, some questioned whether the brothers should have been punished for committing an act that actually wasn't an offense in their culture. Because as crazy as this sounds, some of the people they killed asked them to kill them. They asked to be killed to keep them from turning into Wendigos. Before fleeing, Jack gave a statement to the police in which he insisted that, quote, I did not know what I was doing was wrong. And if I had known, I would not have done the deed. Before Joseph's execution date, uh, he died from illness. And then directly following his death in 1910, after losing two of their leaders, the Sandy Lake clan signed Treaty 5 with the Canadian federal government, ending their freedom and forcing them onto a reservation. Just a random trivia prior to this treaty. They were one of the very last American Indian tribes in North America to still live outside of any jurisdiction of uh, some former colonial government. While, as I said earlier, sightings of the Wendigo have tapered off, uh, and no one that we know of is actively hunting them and trying to kill them any longer, uh, the Wendigo is still around, in a sense, uh, showing up fairly often in 20th and 21st century culture. Uh, A great monster based on the Wendigo named Itaqua shows up in H.P. Lovecraft's The Myths of Cthulhu. Uh, Ever read uh, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery? One of the best creepy lines ever uttered in a horror movie. If you've seen the movie, a little Gage back from the dead killing his family, calling his dad saying, first I play with Judd, then mommy came. I play with mommy. We play daddy, but an awfully good time. Now I want to play with you. It's oh, just, oh, you see, it's so creepy. Such a good horror movie, uh, at least the 1989 version. I've yet to see the remake. Uh, Stephen King himself said this is the scariest story he's ever written. In this book, the Wendigo was responsible for reanimating whatever animal or human was interred in an old Micmac cemetery, which the Micmacs stopped using because they believed the land was sour. The Wendigo manipulated events throughout the story, infecting the characters' minds as they became more stone-hearted and susceptible to the ancient evil. Whether human or pet, the resurrected cadavers came back horribly altered. They were strange and vicious and rotten. They were nothing more than human hosts for the evil spirit of the Wendigo lurking out in the woods. Uh, A variety of other noted authors have also written about the Wendigo. And the Wendigo appears in various role-playing games today, such as Dungeons & Dragons and Werewolf, The Apocalypse. On television, references to the Wendigo include the series Supernatural that began in 2005 and the series Hannibal that ran from 2013 to 2015. Uh, The show Supernatural, I think, just wrapping up now. It's had a crazy long run. Uh, It's shown up in several other series from around the world. In the world of video games, the Wendigo shows up in multiple games, including Until Dawn, which player drives a group of teenagers who must survive the Wendigo in one night uh, on Mount Blackwood. A little nice reference there to the author of that 1910, My Feet Are Burning Up, Wendigo Story. Uh, Then there's the world of comic books and graphic novels. Starting in the 70s, Marvel Comics co-opted the Wendigo legend, taking myths about a bone-thin forest demon, subtly sculpting them into a comic book villain, eight feet tall, covered in muscle. The Wendigo served as a Hulk antagonist, a man cursed with primal hunger after committing an act of cannibalism in the Canadian wilderness. And cool nerd trivia alert. It was during a Hulk versus Wendigo comic that Wolverine made his first ever appearance. The Incredible Hulk, issue number uh, 181, released in November of 1974. That was when uh, Wolverine showed up. Written by Len Wein, drawn by John Romita Sr., Scrappy little dude still had a significant amount of rebranding to do before he would become a household name. He looked different. He had whiskers at the time. He's smaller, but he still managed to whoop Wendigo's ass without using any silver at all. Established himself as a new awesome superhero. Hugh Jackman should be very thankful for the Wendigo legend. Led to the most profitable and iconic acting role of his career. 
Uh, the Wendigo first appeared in the Marvel Universe in The Incredible Hulk number 60, 162, uh, April 1973. In the Marvel Universe, the Wendigo, not one specific person, but instead the manifestation of a curse that can strike anyone who commits an act of cannibalism in the Canadian Northwoods. So stayed pretty true to the folklore. Originally, only one person could become a Wendigo at a time, but then in recent years, a whole pack of Wendigo has been showing up. There's a Wendigo infestation right now in the Marvel Universe near the Bering Strait. At one point, the Wendigo curse even infected the Hulk, turning him into, into Wendahulk. <laughs> Wendahulk? When's that movie coming out? It's a badass mashup. Uh, so that's the Wendigo. Pretty cool stuff, right? We've talked about crazy gods and creatures in North mythology before. All the crazy characters that showed up in the Greek mythology suck. Uh, American Indians also had their own fascinating folklore creatures and tales. So many stories being told long before Europeans uh, made it over to this continent. Now, now let's uh, share some more stories. Let's talk about some others. A lot more unique legends out there than the Wendigo legend. A lot more stories. And like almost all old stories from people around the world, most of these legends have a, a pretty large amount of what the fuck in them. So they're fun. We're going to have some fun with these. Let's start with the Stonish Giants. The Stonish Giants were believed by the Iroquois to be an ancient group of gigantic men who would roll themselves in mud, which became stone so strong their arrows would simply bounce off. Nice. They were just some regular old kind of giants that just happened to have real bad personal hygiene. They bathed so little, rolled around in so much mud, pretty soon their, their skin became stone. You couldn't kill them with an arrow. The stonish giants attacked the Iroquois and the other uh, original six, nation, six nations of the North Eastern Americas for many years, and then finally a long, brutal war pushed these dirty assholes back into the woods. Thankfully, many oral legends about these monsters were recorded by David Cusick, an Iroquois born on the Oneida Reservation in upstate New York around 1780. Cusick's book, Sketches of Ancient History of the Six Nations, published in 1828, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, account of American Indian folklore ever written in English. Uh, he first published the account in a 28-page pamphlet actually the year before in 1827. And here's a summary of some different legends about these creatures that he wrote down. In one tale, the Stonish Giants, who overran the country, fought a great battle, held the people in sub, uh, subjection, subjugation for a long time. The Stone, I'm, I'm assuming uh, it means it's supposed to be subjugation. The Stonish Giants were so ravenous that they devoured the people of almost every town in the country. At the Mississippi River, they had separated from all others and gone to the Northwest. The family was left to seek its habitation and the rules of humanity were forgotten. And afterwards, eat raw flesh of the animals. At length, they practiced rolling themselves on the sand. By this means, their bodies were covered with hard skin. These people became giants and were dreadful invaders of the country. The holder of the heavens led them into a deep ravine near the Oondaga and rolled great stones on them in the night. But one escaped, and since then, the stonish giants left the country and seek asylum in the regions of the north. The Owen, uh, or Onan, Onondagas tell a different tale about the Stonish Giants. They say that a stone giant lived in a little, uh, a little south of their reservation. He was once like other men. He was a great eater, becoming a cannibal and increasing size. More cannibalism. Uh, his skin became hard and changed into scales, which alone would turn, in, turn an arrow. Every day he came to the valley, caught and devoured an Onondaga, a fearful toll. The people were dismayed, but then formed a plan. They made a road in the marsh with a covered pitfall, decoyed the giant through the path, and down he went and was killed. When the giant was found, the Onondagas saw that he was made of stone. Uh, one of the most widely known stone giant stories has a title I love. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's a fun word to say. Scunny Wundy. Scunny Wundy and the Stone Giant. Scunny Wundy sounds like a band name. 
for some super weird indie rockers, like guys who only release their music on vinyl and eight tracks, nothing digital. Guys who always look down to the floor when they play live, always cut their set a little bit short. Uh, here's a story. Long time ago, there lived a person called Scunny Wundy. Scunny Wundy wasn't very big and he wasn't very small, and everybody knew him well because he was always boasting about his bravery. He would talk about all the brave things he had done and all the brave things he was going to do until people would beg him to stop. They weren't quick to do so, however, because Scunny Wundy, whose name meant cross the creek, loved only one thing more than he loved to boast. He loved playing tricks on people. Oh, this Scunny Wundy character, a real rapscallion. Now, in those days, there lived some terrible monsters. There were people who could turn themselves into monster bears, and there were great flying heads who could destroy whole villages. We're going to talk about them more in a little bit. There were monsters hiding in the springs who grabbed careless travelers and great horned serpents living in the lakes. But the most frightening monsters of all were the stone giants. The old sachem, uh, a.k.a. chief, was interested. Aren't you even afraid of the stone giants? He asked Scunny Wundy. Ha! said Scunny Wundy. I will destroy the stone giants if they dare to fight me. There is no greater warrior than Scunny Wundy. Without his noticing it, everyone crept quiet away and left Scunny Wundy standing there, shaking his stone hatchet and boasting. While he strode up and down, all the people gathered in the council house. Soon a young man came out and ran out of the village, only to return a few minutes later. Scunny Wundy did not even notice. All the people, led by the old sachem, came out of the council house and gathered around Scunny Wundy. The old man said, Scunny Wundy, rejoice! We have decided to give you a chance to prove your bravery! Scunny Wundy stopped, striding back and forth. He looked around. All eyes in the village were focused upon him. Ah, he said, with a worried look. That is, that is very good. But, um, uh, what, what do you mean? Oh, shit, Scunny Wundy, you done did it! Your mouth just kept writing checks, and now your ass is gonna have to cash them. We have decided, the old man said with just a hint of a smile, to allow you to fight the Flintcoats. Now, the Flintcoats, that's just another name for the Stone Giants. Oh, Scotty Wundy said, that, that is good. But, huh, how, how can I find the, the stone giants? Why, they, they, might, they, they might even run away when they see me coming. Do not worry, the old man answered, smiling broadly. A very big stone giant stands even now on the other side of the river. He is waiting for you. We sent a messenger to him. He should, that he should run away before the mighty warrior Scunny Wundy arrived to destroy him. And that made the stone giant very angry. He swore he would stay there until you arrived. Pretty sure Scunny Wundy shits himself. Starts crying at, at this point in some of the stories. Uh, in this tale, Scunny Wundy was very frightened, but he knew he had to accept his challenge. If he didn't, people would never stop making fun of him. Ha! Scunny Wundy said, that is good. I shall go now to fight the Flintcoat. He strode quickly out of the village. However, as soon as he was out of sight, he began to walk more slowly. He needed time to think. How could he defeat such a monster? If I throw rocks at him, he said to himself, he'll catch them and chew them up like ripe berries. If I shoot arrows at him, they'll snap like blades of dry grass. Now I must think. Stone giants aren't very bright after all. Perhaps I can think of some way to trick him. Ah, good luck, Scunny Wundy. You're going to need it. Just then, Scunny Wundy heard a very loud, frightening noise that sounded like the beating of a gigantic drum or the roaring of a hurricane wind. It came from the direction of the river just beyond the trees. Scunny Wundy crept closer. He peered out from behind a tree, saw what he had been afraid he would see. There on the other side of the river stood the biggest, ugliest, angriest stone giant anyone could ever imagine. 
He had pulled a giant pine tree up by the roots and was beating it against the earth, making a noise like an enormous drum. As he pounded the ground, he sang a terrible war song in a voice as loud as a hurricane. Better run, Scunny. Find a new tribe. Start a new life. This is a suicide mission. Scunny Wundy began to turn around so that he could tiptoe away, but it was too late. Oh, the stone giant roared. Who is over there? Are you Scunny Wundy who says he can destroy me? Scunny Wundy stepped out from behind a tree. Yes, he shouted. I am Scunny Wundy, and it is true that I can destroy you. Come over here and fight me. Oh, look at old Scunny. Braver than I figured he was going to be. Holding the giant pine tree in one hand like a war club, the stone giant waded into the river. The water was deep. Before he was halfway across, he disappeared under the water. Quick as a fox, Scunny Wundy hurried upstream where the river was shallow and quickly crossed over to the other side. Before long, the stone giant's head came out of the water near the other side. He climbed up onto the bank where Scunny Wundy had been standing. Oh! The stone giant roared. Where is Scunny Wundy? Here I am, shouted Scunny Wundy from the other side. The stone giant turned and looked at him. Why did you go over there? He growled. Over where? Scunny Wundy asked. I'm still waiting for you. You must have gotten turned around underwater. If you aren't afraid of me, come over here and fight. The stone giant roared with anger and rushed into the river again. He immediately disappeared under the water and Scunny Wundy had to run quickly to cross over back to the other side of the river. He ran so fast he dropped his stone hatchet and left it behind. God damn it, Scunny! How could you be so careless? You had one thing to hold on to, your hatchet. And the stone giant climbed out of the water again. There was no sign of Scunny Wundy, but right in front of him was Scunny Wundy's hatchet. What is this? growled the stone giant. This must be a toy. He lifted the hatchet to his mouth, touched it to his tongue to test its sharpness. Then he struck Scunny Wundy's hatchet against a real boulder, and to his surprise, the boulder split right in two. Meanwhile, Scunny Wundy was watching from the other side of the river. He had heard that any weapon touched by the saliva of a stone giant would have magical power, and now he knew that was true. So that's why he dropped it. Okay, Scunny. Okay, all right. Respect. I see what you did there. Crafty old Scunny Wundy. Scunny Wundy slipped out from behind the trees, waved his arms. Ha! Scunny Wundy shouted, Come over here and bring me back my hatchet so that I can cut your head off with it. For the first time in his long life, the stone giant felt fear in his cold flint heart. If Scunny Wundy's little stone hatchet could split boulders in two, Scunny Wundy would surely be able to destroy him. No, pleaded the giant. Do not kill me. You are a terrible warrior. Let me go and I will see that none of my people ever come near your village again. Scunny Wundy pretended to think for a minute. Turned his head. He was like, fuck yeah, bro. Fuck, did it. Then he nodded his head. That is good. You may go and save your life. But always remember, Scunny Wundy is a great warrior. Stone Giant hastened away, leaving Scunny Wundy's hatchet on the riverbank. As soon as he was out of sight, Scunny Wundy crossed over and retrieved his weapon. Now I must return to my village. My people will be very glad to hear the stories I shall tell them. Thus it was that Scunny Wundy used his wits to defeat the Stone Giant. The end. Now, I'm not going to lie. The end of that story was a bit of a letdown for me. Happy Scunny Wundy didn't get crushed, but really hoping for a battle. Really hoping for a little bit of action. Not expecting any Scunny Wandy movies to get greenlit anytime soon. Pretty, pretty anticlimactic. I get the lesson though. You got to use your brains rather than your blade whenever you can. Oh man, if Scunny Wandy was uh, obnoxious before, whoo, he's going to be intolerable after this. 
He's going to tell that story for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you tricked the stone giant. Jesus Christ, I've, I've heard this story for, I don't know, 5,000 times. Come on, Scun. Now let's talk about the Mohawk legend of the flying head. Also known as whirlwind or big head, the flying head is also related to the Plains tribe's legend of the rolling head. A lot of giants, cannibals, and big heads in American Indian folklore. Uh, flying heads are undead monsters, kind of, a, kind of like zombies. The flying head appears as a huge disembodied head with fiery eyes and long tangled hair. It flies through the air, pursuing humans to chase and devour them. You know, I'm already thinking of a flying head movie better than a Scunny Wendy movie. Uh, the origin of the flying head, uh, you know, legend vary greatly from story to story, tribe to tribe. And some tales of flying heads created from a violent murder scene. The severed head of a victim grows to enormous size, or sometimes the head emerges from a mass grave. And in other stories, a human is transformed into a flying head after committing an act of cannibalism. There we go again. Cannibalism. Always back to cannibalism. Real problem in ancient American Indian history. Uh, here is, here is uh, one old flying head legend. There were many evil spirits and terrible monsters that hid in the mountain caves when the sun shone, but came out to vex and plague the native men when storms swept the earth or when there was darkness in the forest. Among them was a flying head, when, uh, which, when it rested upon the ground, was higher than the tallest man. It was covered with a thick coating of hair that shielded it from the stroke of arrows. The face was dark and angry, filled with great wrinkles and horrid furrows. Long black wings came out of its sides, and when it rushed through the air, mournful sounds assailed the ears of frightened men and women. On its underside were two long, sharp claws with which it tore its food and attacked its victims. Damn. That makes the Wendigo seem like no big deal. It's a nasty-ass monster. Might, might give Baba Yaga a run for her monster money. The flying head came most often to frighten the women and children. It came at night to the homes of the widows and orphans. Oh, man, it's a real asshole beat its angry wings upon the walls of their houses and uttered fearful cries in an unknown tongue. Then it went away, and in a few days, death followed and took one of the little family with him. The maiden to whom the flying head appeared never heard the words of a husband's wooing or the prattle of a papoose, for a pestilence came upon her, and she soon sickened and died. That flying head's a real piece of shit. One night a widow sat alone in her cabin, from a little fire burning near the door, she frequently drew roasted acorns and ate them for her evening meal. She did not see the flying head grinning at her from the doorway, for her eyes were deep in the coals and her thoughts upon the scene, unseens of happiness in which she dwelt before her husband and children had gone away to the long home. The flying head stealthily reached forth one of its long claws and snatched some of the coals of fire and thrust them into its mouth, for it thought these were what the woman was eating. With a howl of pain, it flew away, and the native men never afterwards were troubled by its visits. So that's how you trick a giant flying monster head into leaving you alone. You got to trick it into eating some hot coals. Noted. Super tough monster with one huge weakness. Super fucking dumb. It can be easily tricked into eating hot coals. All you have to do is just make a fire and stare at coals. Uh, another creepy American Indian entity is the Do... This is a little tough. Uh... It's the Duzunuqua, Duzunuqua. The Duzunuqua, a.k.a. the wild woman of the basket ogress, is a figure in the Yawak mythology. Man, this is all the, all the words in this language are tough. Uh, it's the people uh, come from the coast of the Pacific Northwest. She's a mixed bag monster, the basket ogress. She can bring you wealth, but she can also steal your kids and carry them home in her basket to eat. She is the perfect monster to run into if you A, need money, and B, want to get rid of a couple annoying kids. 
Uh, she appears as a naked, black as midnight, ugly monster woman with long, pendulous breasts. She uses her pendulous breasts as her weapons, twisting her body back and forth to slap her prey down to the ground with her fierce monster titties. Sometimes she'll do a kind of helicopter spin move with her long old boob clubs, whirling them and rowling them and whirling them and whirling them and pounding you with the razor nipples over and over, beating you ruthlessly with the ferocious, saggy titty clubs. Uh, she doesn't do any of that. She doesn't do any of that with her boobs. But she is described as having long, pendulous breasts. And that's where my mind went with all that. She's also described as having bedraggled hair and masks and totem poles. Uh, she is shown with bright red pursed lips. She is said to give off the call, who? And she has a kid. Doesn't get mentioned much, but she does have a kid hanging around somewhere. Poor kid. Can't imagine she's an awesome mom. Uh, it's often, uh, um, our children are often told that the sound of the wind blowing through the trees is actually the call of the Dezunaqua. Some myths say that she's able to bring herself back from the dead, an ability she uses in some myths to revive her children and regenerate any wound. She's like Wolverine. If Wolverine had wispy hair and long-ass titties. Man, if Wolverine looked like that, ah, that'd give the uh, X-Men movies a real different feel, wouldn't it? She has limited eyesight, can easily be avoided because she can barely see. She's also said to be dim-witted. <laughs> she's not coming across uh, super fearful or, you know, super scary, excuse me, at the moment. Now, I mean, yeah, yeah, she's a monster, sure. But she's also old, dumb, she can't see very well. Uh, but she possesses great wealth and she will bestow it upon you if you're able to gain control of her kids. Doesn't say how you're supposed to do that, though. Now, let's talk about uh, one of the very few American Indian folklore creatures I had heard about prior to the suck, other than the Wendigo, the Thunderbird. Thunderbird, a widespread figure in American Indian mythology in the U.S. and Canada, shows up in various forms in a lot of different people's legends. Uh, described as a supernatural, enormous bird, the Thunderbird is generally portrayed as a force for good. Thunderbird's a creature of power and strength that protects humans from evil spirits. Called the Thunderbird because of the flapping of its powerful wings, sounds like thunder, lightning, shoot out of its eyes. Fuck yeah, that'd be a sweet-ass power. Man, if I could shoot lightning out of my eyes, I'd have to work a lot harder to keep from ever getting real hungry. Fools be getting lightened up, left and right, every time my blood sugar got low. Uh, the Thunderbirds would bring rain and storms, which could be good or bad. Good when the rain was needed, bad when the rain came with destructive strong winds, floods, and fires caused by lightning. Kind of like a Thor figure here. The, the bird said to be so large, several legends tell it picking up a whale in his talons. A big ass bird. Thunderbird said to have bright and colorful feathers with sharp teeth and claws. They lived in the clouds high above the tallest mountains. In Algonquin mythology, the Thunderbird controls the upper world, while the underworld is controlled by the underwater panther or the great horned serpent, from which the Thunderbird protects humans by throwing lightning at it. According to these legends, Thunderbirds ancestors of the human race, and they helped create the universe. Uh, the Menominee of Wisconsin. Tell of a great mountain that floats in the western sky, and that's where the Thunderbirds live. From there, they control the rain. Thunderbirds, enemies of the great horned snakes called the Masiginabik, but they fight to, uh, to prevent them from overrunning the earth and devouring mankind. Said to be messengers of the great sun himself and delight in deeds of greatness. The Ojibwe version of the Thunderbird legend is similar, but in, the, in this legend, the Thunderbirds fight underwater spirits. Their traditions also say the Thunderbird is responsible for punishing humans who break moral rules. They say that the bird was created by Nanabozo, Abozo, Nan Abozo, a high spirit cultural hero, and that the birds lived in the four directions and migrated to Ojibwe lands during the spring with other birds. The Thunderbirds then stayed until the fall when the most dangerous season for underwater spirits had passed. 
I, I, I often forget about that. The underwater spirit danger season. People are like, yeah, you want to go for a walk? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's April. It's underwater spirit season. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, then they migrated south with other birds. Then there's the uh, Winnebago. The Winnebago say that the man who has a vision of a Thunderbird during a solitary fast will become a war chief. They also believe that the Thunderbird has the power to grant people great abilities. The Thunderbird of the Sioux people was a noble creature that protected humans from the Unktehila. Uh, the Unktehila. Dangerous reptilian monsters. Talk about those monsters for a second. In Lakota folklore, the Unktehila, massive snake lady with eyes of fire, fanged mouth shrouded in smoky or, or cloudy mass, long scaly body whose natural armor is almost impenetrable. Her claws are like iron and her voice rages like thunder in the clouds. Whoever looks upon her will go blind or become insane. To kill her, one has to shoot a medicine arrow directly into her heart. So many monsters. Back to the Thunderbirds. Some believe they were shapeshifters, often changing their appearance to interact with people. To the Shawnee tribe, they appeared as boys, could only be identified by their tendency to speak backwards. Some tribes, Thunderbirds were considered extremely sacred forces in nature. In others, they were treated like powerful but otherwise ordinary members of the animal kingdom. Many legends reference the anger of the Thunderbirds as something fearsome to behold. It results in harsh punishments. One story, an entire village was turned to stone by some Thunderbirds for the wrongdoings. Some believe that the Thunderbird mythology began way back with the ancient mound builders of North America. Throughout history, the Thunderbird symbol has appeared on totem poles, pottery, petroglyphs, masks, jewelry, and carvings. Okay, four more American Indian monster summaries. Little quick hits here. First up, the ghost witch. One of the scariest figures in Micmac mythology, the ghost witch often said to be born from the dead body of a shaman who practiced black magic. The demonic entity emerges at night from the shaman's corpse with murder on its mind. They can be killed with fire, but beware of approaching one, simply making eye contact or hearing the witch's voice can bring a diabolical curse down on the unwary. That leads to nothing but bad luck and an untimely death. Here's an old ghost witch story. An old witch was dead, and his people buried him in a tree up amongst the branches, in a grove that they used for a burial place. Sometime after this, in the winter, an Indian and his wife came along looking for a good place to spend the night. They saw the grove went in and built their cooking fire. When their supper was over, the woman looking up saw long, dark things hanging amongst the tree branches. What are they? she asked. They are only the dead of long ago, said her husband. I want to sleep. What? Dude, why before saying I want to sleep would you ever tell your wife that <laughs> the dead are up in the tree branches above you? Say some birds, you know, say some squirrels or some shit. Anything other than the dead. That would not play well with my wife, Lindsay. You know, if she woke up scared, baby, do you hear that? There's something outside of our tent. Lindsay, go, go back to sleep. Now I hear it. Now I hear it. Don't. It's just. It's just the dead of long ago. Just some old zombies. Nothing to worry about. Now let me get some shot. Uh, this man's wife didn't like it either, and she said, "I don't like it at all. I think we better sit up all night." The man would not listen to her. He went to sleep. Soon the fire went out. Then she began to hear a gnawing sound, like an animal with a bone. She sat still, very much scared, all night long. About dawn, she could stand it no longer, and reaching out, tried to wake her husband, but could not. She thought him sound asleep. The gnawing had stopped. When daylight came, she went to her husband and found him dead with his left side gnawed away and his heart gone. Oh, buddy, just got ghost witched. Should have listened to your lady. She turned and ran. At last, she came to a lodge where there were some people. Here, she told her story, but they would not believe it, thinking she had killed the man herself. They went with her to the place. There, they found the man with his heart gone, lying under the burial tree. 
with the dead witch right overhead. They took the body down and unwrapped it. The mouth and face were covered with fresh blood. All right, before we move on, uh, sorry about this, but one more quick sponsor, everybody. Uh, today's Time Suck is brought to you by Woody's Spirit Supplies and More Spectral Emporium. Hey, everybody, it's me, Woody. Hey, Anton, hit those calliope offers if you would, sir. <laughs> we sure have been talking about a lot of monsters today. Maybe they're not real. Sure. Or maybe a ghost witch or a wendigo's gonna eat you alive. <laughs> a lot of these creatures get you by tricking you. In order for them to not trick you, you have to not be able to hear them. If you recall months ago, I tried selling you my Beelzebub earplugs. They don't just keep Satan out of your sound holes. They also keep out wendigos, ghost witches, basket ogresses, blind heads, and other creepy cryptic crawlies. Listen to how good they work. Earplug in. <laughs> See? Earplug out. There he goes again. So please go to Woody Spirit Supplies and more SpectrumPorium.biz and help me find Charles Gutman. I haven't seen him in months. Not since I stabbed him for some malt liquor money. It was a wild night. Whee! And of course, that was not a quote-unquote real sponsor. I, I just wanted to hear from Woody. Felt right, and it had been too long. Uh, back to more monsters. From American Indian folklore, some ladies that might have been uh, scarier than the ghost witch are the owl women, a.k.a. the Tataklea. From the Yakima Band of Tribes in eastern Washington comes tales of five supernatural women who resemble giant owls, dwelling in caves by day, flying out at night to prey on all manner of creatures, including, of course, humans. Almost all American Indian monsters mostly want to eat people. It's one of the main things I'm taking away from this episode. Almost every mythological monster in North America just mostly wants to eat me. Uh, these monsters were said to prefer the taste of children. Okay, up, up in the ante. Owl women aren't just cannibals. They're, they're cannibals with, a, with a, a taste for kids. Legend has it that they hunt humans by mimicking our languages. The owl itself a symbol of death in many American Indian cultures, so owl women essentially walking embodiments of death itself. Uh, next up, surprise, surprise, more cannibals. Some scary little cannibals. The Taihaihan. Uh, among the most dreaded figures in Cheyenne and Arapaho and other plains people legends is the Taihaihan. The Taihaihan. Uh, savage child-sized humanoids, incredibly strong, often attack in large numbers. Sweet. Uh, according to some myths, the Taihaihan were fearsome warriors in a previous life, resurrected as dwarves after dying in battle. Most of those tales say they were finally wiped out by an alliance of several tribes. The best way to defeat these creatures is to use your wits because they are also, like a lot of the other monsters, pretty dumb. According to one story published in the Handbook of Native Mythology, a warrior was captured by a Taihaihan, Taihaihan to try and delay his inevitable death. He struck up a conversation with him. As they talked, the warrior noticed there were a lot of little hearts hanging on the wall around him. Hard not to notice that. And he asked the Taihaihan what the gruesome organs were. And the creature told him that they were the hearts of his relatives who were out hunting at the time. Why are you fucking, why did you say that? And then the dumb Taihaihan let this warrior casually walk around and just examine each heart. And each heart he examined, he would pierce with a knife. And the Taihaihan didn't realize that by piercing these hearts, this warrior was killing his family. And then with the final stab, the warrior pierced the heart of the Taihaihan who was holding him captive. And the creature immediately dropped dead. Ah, poor little monster. So powerful, but just too dumb, you know, to really be an effective monster. And last one is a monster you probably heard of, the Skinwalker. Uh, the Yi Nayal Dushi. Ah, oh, man, I can't, I can't say that one. Uh, spoke of mainly in Navajo folklore. The Skinwalker, essentially the North American equivalent of the werewolf. Similar to a Wendigo. 
Uh, most tales, the skinwalker is a magical or cursed human being, usually a shaman who takes part in a heretical ceremony designed to summon evil forces so that he may take on the characteristics of an animal. And that animal can take on many forms, including wolves, bears, and birds. If the shaman stays too long in his new animal form, he can lose his humanity completely. Now he's a skinwalker. The shape-shifting skinwalker of American Indian legend takes on various forms across tribes. Most agree uh, on what it looks like. A deformed, animalistic body, marred face, blazing orange-red eyes. Non-Native America got its first real taste of the Navajo legend in 1996. When Salt Lake City's oldest newspaper, Deseret News, published an article titled Frequent Flyers? Question mark. The story chronicled a Utah family's traumatizing experience with this supposed creature that included cattle mutilations, disappearances, UFO sightings, and the appearance of crop circles. Family's most distressing encounter occurred one night just 18 months after moving on to the ranch. Terry Sherman, father of the family, was walking his dogs around the ranch late at night when he says he encountered a wolf. And he says this was no ordinary wolf. It was perhaps three times bigger than a normal wolf, glowing red eyes. It stood unfazed by three close-range shots Sherman blasted into its hide. Word spread that maybe, instead of extraterrestrials, and just big wolves, maybe skinwalkers were what was going on in the ranch. Sherman family, not the only ones to be traumatized on the property. After they moved out, several new owners experienced eerily similar encounters with these creatures, and today the ranch has become a hub of paranormal research, aptly renamed Skinwalker Ranch. So much of this story, uh, I think we'll save a deeper dive on it for another day. I'd like to dedicate an entire suck to it eventually. Uh, if you just need a little more Skinwalker in your life right now, listen to episode 27 of Scared to Death Podcast. I've heard it's fantastic. Skinwalker's episode. Cross promotion! Hail Lucifina. Uh, so that's today's episode. We barely only scratched the surface of American Indian folklore. So many different gods, so many different monsters, so many rich and imaginative stories. Like the ancient histories of so many of the world's cultures, these creatures and the tales they're featured in used to teach morality, tribal culture, taboos, creation, and history. The ancient lore of the indigenous peoples of North America is as varied and far-reaching as the continent itself. Unless you're well-versed in native lore, it's easy not to realize how many of these tales are populated by horrifying spirits, ghosts, witches, demons, and monsters. Many of the frightening creatures we spoke of today span multiple tribes, in some cases, hundreds of generations. If you investigate their origins further, you'll see they have many different names and traits depending on where their tale is told. Hope you found all of this as entertaining as I did. Uh, now time for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the earliest version of the Wendigo legend that we know of comes from the Algonquin-based American Indian tribes and describes an evil spirit or demonic entity able to possess humans and in some cases transform into humans, uh, you know, bodies. Uh, this malevolent spirit, driven by its insatiable hunger for human flesh, any human possessed by it soon will be consumed by cannibalistic urges. Number two, the Wendigo also a lesson in gluttony. According to Algonquin myths, or Algonqu Algonquian myths, there we go, Algonquian, uh, once a Wendigo eats another person, it grows directly in proportion to the person it just consumed, making it impossible to ever feel full. The Wendigo, a monster of more. If you constantly feel unsatisfied in life, feel like you always need more, a little more money, a little better car, more, more, more. Well, you got a little Wendigo in you. Number three, the Wendigo continues to live on as more and more authors and storytellers adopt the creature into their own universes. The creature's inspired one of my favorite horror movies ever, one of my favorite horror books ever, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Number four, watch out for the Dezonaqua. If you're not paying attention, that old basket ogress might just beat you to test with her long, floppy war titties. And number five, something new, one more monster. There's another American Indian creature similar to the Wendigo known as the Wechuge. The Wechuge is a man-eating creature 
or evil spirit appearing in the legends of the Athabasca people. In their mythology, it is said to be a person who has been possessed or overwhelmed by the power of one of the ancient giant spirit animals. Canadian anthropologist and professor Robin Ridington came across stories of the Wechuge while speaking with the Danza of the Peace River region in Western Canada. The Danza believe that one can become a Wechuge by breaking some pretty random taboos that don't have anything to do with cannibalism. Uh, taboos that can get you turned into a Wechuge include having your photo taken with a flash, listening to music made with a stretch, string, or hide, uh, like guitar music, or eating meat with fly eggs in it. So, son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm going to be a Wechuge uh, any day now. Because I do two out of three of those all the time. I listen to guitar-based music constantly, and I can't stop eating fly-infested meat, you know? Uh, like the Wendigo, the Wechuge seeks to eat people. Of course they do. Always back to eating people. In one folktale, the Wechuge is made of ice and very strong and is only killed by being thrown on a campfire and kept there overnight until it is melted. Being a Wechuge considered a curse and a punishment. Time suck. Top five takeaways. This tale of the Wendigo has been sucked. I loved it. I hope you did. Uh, unlike the Wendigo, I feel full. I feel full of weird monsters right now. I like it. Uh, my appetite, it's sated. Uh, thank you to the Time Suck team for helping put another episode together. Queen of the Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe, Horsecock Johnson Paisley, Bit Elixir, Logan and Kate at Spicy Club Run and BadMagicMerch.com and socials. Thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery, for doing some great cryptid research. Some great anthropology research. Uh, thanks to all those involved in keeping the cult of the curious private Facebook group moderated. Uh, the Countess of the Cult, Liz Hernandez, her all-seeing eyes. Liz also seen the Bojangles emails. If you want more interaction outside of the Facebook group, you can check out our Discord channel as well. Time Suck Discord channel, most easily accessed uh, via the Time Suck app, available on Apple and Google Play stores. And also, by the way, I know for some of you, there was a, a problem with some episodes on Spotify, maybe some other players, I think uh, some Google players, and on our app, it was our host provider. There was an RSS situation. They did address it within like, uh, I think, 24 hours. And then uh, the, the good guys at uh, BitElixir adjusted our app with an update to address the RSS feed change. So that should all be fixed. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we add to our growing collection of depraved human hunters by heading across the Atlantic to investigate the life and fucked up meals of one of Europe's most grotesque serial killers ever, Yochum Kroll. But never heard of this dude prior to a few days ago. Unbelievable, this malevolent freak of unholy nature, not better known. Striking similarities between Kroll and other time suck shit stain all-stars like Andre Chikatilo, Ed Gein, Otis Toole, Albert Fish are all there. Kroll raped and murdered at least 14 mostly young women and children over the course of a 20-year murder spree. His debauchery didn't stop when he killed his victims. It really just got going. Beginning in 1955, this sexual psycho unleashed his unnatural fetishes on the city of Duisburg, a city of roughly half a million people near the border of Germany and the Netherlands. Uncle, uh, oh man, oh, his name, Uncle Yochum, uh, as he was known to the children in his neighborhood, was uh, a hard dirtbag to hunt down. German authorities thought they were tracking a criminal mastermind, but in reality, they were on the erratic trail of, of a cannibalistic maniac, far from the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, so yes, more cannibalism next week. going to be another dark, gory dive into the depths of human depravity. Make sure to join us next week to find out just how far some people are willing to go to save a few bucks at the grocery store. And that is next week on Time Suck. Now let's see what messages you've been sending in recently on today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Let's start with someone getting Cummins Lod. Uh, this in from Super Sucker and Fire Extinguisher, Doc. Doc writes, 
Dear Master Sucker and all that jazz. I love it. I'm a wildland fighter in the Pacific Northwest, and my crew loves listening to Time Suck in the truck and the shop to help get through the mind-numbing downtime, which is part of our job. I've been meaning to write you about an awkward moment with the facilities inspector from headquarters, which happened last summer. Myself and four other crew members, including one of our captains, were in the shop cleaning some chainsaws, listening to the Albert Fish episode. We're pretty much degenerate, so it's one of our favorites. After spending the morning showing, uh, showing the inspector around our shop and offices and fixing some minor building code issues he found. You were starting to recount Fish's affair with Thomas Kedden, and we were all giggling like the goofballs we are with our Bluetooth, Bluetooth speaker turned up entirely too loud given the subject matter. The back door to the shop opened as you went on impersonating Fish. None of us paid it much mind. We're usually left to ourselves out there. Turns out the facilities inspector had another question for us, and it still cracks me up to remember his jaw hitting the floor, as you said, in Albert Fish's voice. Then I made him lay on his back in bed. I turned both of his legs backward and strapped his feet to the head of the iron bed. And I had his nice, pretty fat ass turned up to me to do whatever I could think of. And that was plenty. <laughs> the inspector stood there dumbfounded, and I was too busy fighting off laughter to pause the suck for another second. So he definitely also caught the sense, I stuck a needle in his dicky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at this point, the guy gathered himself enough to meekly ask, can, can you guys show me around the paint shed? And the most grown-up of us managed to act like nothing had happened and led the guy out of the shop. As soon as the door closed, we totally lost it. Our crew captain had turned around to hide his belly laughs and spent the entire encounter heaving with his back to the inspector. I guess that's how they do it in Hollywood. Showbiz. Anyway, thought you'd appreciate another story of the suck blasting out at the right time for comedy and the wrong time for normal social interaction. Keep doing what you're doing. We seriously appreciate all your hard work and all the laughter and conversations we get out of the suck. On the off chance you read this on the show, please give a shout out to my awesome boss, Peter Bird. Birdman might literally fill the truck with some peanut butter butter if you did. Praise be to Bojangles, Doc. Well, thank you, Doc. And get ready to lap up Birdman's piping hot peanut butter butter straight off the spigot. Uh, so glad you had a good laugh out of all that. Albert Fish. Uh, Albert Fish is a lot to take in with context. Out of context, oh boy. I bet that inspector still wonders from time to time what the fuck you guys were listening to. <laughs> and I bet he can't understand why any just degenerate would ever laugh listening to that kind of filth. Uh, hope we can keep you guys laughing throughout a pretty tense year so far. Appreciate it. Uh, second message comes in from Top Shelf Time Sucker, fellow Idahoan, uh, Andrea Levitt, who shares a tale of her father's wartime heroism. Thank you for the pronunciation, Andrea. I know some people will do Andrea, and I know that drives Andrea's crazy. Uh, these kind of stories never cease to amaze and inspire me. Andrea writes, all hail unholy King Master Sucker <laughs> from your fellow Idaho potatoes. My boyfriend and I listen to both podcasts almost religiously, so thank you so much for all your time and effort and fucking awesomeness. Oh, that's not very nice. You, uh, that's very nice. So you put into the suck and the fear and the spooks you and Lindsay put into scared to death. Y'all get, th y'all get me through many a shitty day at work. Well, I'm glad we can help. I uh, just listened to the Vietnam War suck, decided to send in my paw dad's uh, personal Vietnam story. I love that nickname for your dad, Pa Dad. Fair warning is long, but very worth the read. My Pa Dad went into the Navy at 17 per my grandparents' permission and demand as my grandfather was in the Air Force at the time. One of the most memorable stories I can remember him telling me is him laying on the front of a Navy ship, smoking a joint, listening to the radio while LBJ was making a statement saying they were pulling out of the war and the boys were all coming home. While my dad had bomber jets flying over the top of him heading out to Vietnam. My dad has some amazing stories. I'm going to tell you about uh, the one that sent him home. It's a gruesome story. This is in my dad's words. I have edited it. I have edited it for clarity. I was a 50 caliber machine gunner on the front of the Navy River Patrol ships. 
When you got lost in the jungle, they would tell you to go to the river and wait for the Navy to come by so you could get a ride back to the safety of camp. This day in particular, there was a young Marine, probably about 18, who flagged down the patrol. There were four men on the boat, Captain, First Mate, me, and this Marine. We decided to dock about 500 yards offshore before we were going back down the river to check for more men. When we drop anchor, we look to shore and see this scrawny Vietnamese man standing there staring at us. He goes behind a bush and pulls out an RPG, a literal rocket launcher. At this point, we're laughing at him. At the time, those had a range of 250 yards, so we weren't worried about being harmed. This man put the rocket launcher on his shoulder, aimed and fired. We were still laughing. Somehow, it skipped on the water and got up over the ship and blew up. The captain was decapitated, and the first mate was killed by shrapnel. I was hit in the abdomen, and my intestines were now on the ground. The Marine was fine. We heard the roar of a small boat engine, and I told him to hide while I played dead best I could. Two Vietnamese men boarded our boat with bayoneted rifles and stabbed the captain's head. Jesus, flung it off the ship while I was laying uh, with my intestines, trying not to show them I was alive. Laying on my intestines. Oh, trying not to show them I was alive. They stabbed me and the first mate to make sure we were dead. I didn't have much to stab since my guts were on the ground under me. As the men turned around to talk, I pulled my daddy's pistol out of my shoulder holster and killed them both, emptying all rounds just to make sure. I started to black out as the Marine kid ran to me. Next thing I remember is being full-blown uh, full slapped by someone screaming, boy, if you go to sleep, you're going to die. As I was hanging out of a helicopter with my intestines in a metal bowl. My God. I've been overdosed on morphine at this point. They would put a pin on your lapel for every dose they gave you, and they missed a couple pins. I now have a three-inch wide zipper scar from my pelvis to my collarbone. Whew. And I'm missing three and a half feet of intestine. I tore them up pretty bad when I tried to stand up after I was first hit with a shrapnel. Shock does crazy things to you. Wow. Uh, hope you read this and enjoy the firsthand insight from a strong, stubborn, wonderful man. My pa dad is still alive and well and not so much kicking as he has a lot of health issues. But he is still around to tell me interesting stories of his world travels and the amazing things he's seen and experienced. All hail Nimrod and praise Bojangles, your loyal sucker, Andrea. And then the pronunciation guide, because no one can ever say it right. Well, thank you, Andrea, so much for sharing your dad's story, your pa dad's story. Man, tough dude. What a crazy day for him to live through. Please thank him for his service and his sacrifice. Holy shit, I uh, never had a life experience that intense. And at this point, I, I hope I never do. Whew, I'm good just uh, hearing these stories now. It's, it's inspiring. You know, when I have uh, tough moments in life that I think are tough, I think of stories like this, and then I'm just like, shut the fuck up to myself. And I'm like, stop it. Come on, just keep, keep, keep going. Uh, next up, Super Sack Dylan Briggs has a seriously rough uh, go of things lately. He's had a, had a, had a rough uh, year. Many of you have been helping him keep his head up. He writes, I think a rough couple years, actually. Yeah, uh, Dear uh, Master of the Suck, Dan, my name is Dylan. I'm 23, year old, 23 years old. I'm from Mooresville, North Carolina. I've been a fan of Time Suck for roughly two years now. I started listening when I heard you on one of my other favorite podcasts, Heartland Radio. Your dark sense of, that's a great podcast, by the way. Those guys are awesome. Uh, your dark sense of humor and craziness had me hooked, so I decided to give Time Suck a chance, and boy, I do not regret it. From that point on, Time Suck became my number one podcast. I would hit play as soon as the new episode came out. I'd get up and listen to the suck, work an awesome job. Life was great. But then shit hit the fan hard. All started back on August 30th, 2019, while celebrating my long-term uh, girlfriend's 21st birthday. Our car got hit by a drugged-out motorcyclist going 122 miles per hour. The impact instantly killed our three friends in the back seat. Oh, shit. Uh, one of which was my best friend from college who was serving in the Army, just got back from deployment. Going to all three of their funerals was very hard to handle for my girlfriend and me. I remember on the ride back down from my friend's burial in Arlington National Cemetery, 
I put on the suck about Doc Holiday, used it to help escape the real world for a few minutes. A few months later, I lost out on a job due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This job would have propelled me into my dream job of being a North Carolina State Park Ranger. And man, I'm so sorry for your friends there. That's terrible. A uh, job I've been working to get since I was 12, 12 years old. I was told by the state that there was no longer a need for environmental educators in the state parks for this summer and that educating the park visitors was not a top priority. I was devastated, but time sucking the cult of the curious helped me get through and kept me motivated to work harder toward my passion. Just when I thought life couldn't get much worse, it threw me another curveball this past Wednesday. I was helping my dad put a roof on his house and the ladder I was on slipped out from the side of the house, making me fall. It knocked out four of my front teeth, broke one, fractured part of my skull near my mouth, I included pictures for your viewing pleasure. I saw them. I don't have any form of dental insurance, but thankfully my loving girlfriend started to GoFundMe to help me uh, to help take some of the financial burden away. Some time suckers have already donated. It really shows how much this community cares for one another. I'm having to eat soft foods and I talk with a fairly noticeable lisp that I keep apologizing to people for. It has me pretty depressed to be honest, but whenever I start feeling down, I pop the headphones on and listen to the latest suck, giving me that escape from the real world. Throughout all that's happened to me over the past year, Time Suck, the Cult of the Curious Facebook group, my girlfriend, Jasmine, have kept me from slipping into a very dark place, and I know it will help me from uh, with the tough years to come. Sorry for the kind of long email. Just wanted to share my story, let you and the other Time Suckers know how much this community really means to people and how little things like talking about serial killers and straight-up wackadoodles can change the mindset of someone that is down in the dumps. Thanks for all that you do. Keep on sucking. Dylan Briggs. Uh, wow, man. Whew. Uh, thank you, Dylan. I did look at those pictures and, uh, man, I love, I was so impressed that despite missing a lot of teeth, you're smiling. You're a tough son of a bitch, Dylan, man. You have been through, wow, uh, one hell of a ringer of a year. Uh, thanks for reminding uh, us here why it's important to make these shows the best we can every week, not half-ass it. Uh, if you'd like to help Dylan, anyone listening, you can find his GoFundMe campaign by just Googling Dylan's teeth. GoFundMe. Pump pops right up. Uh, I, of course, hope things get immensely better for you going forward. I hope that that dream job gets put back on the table, just like things have quickly been changing for the worse, you know, uh, for you uh, recently. Things can also change for the better just as quick. You know, we've covered a lot of history here on Time Suck, and over and over again, every time there are periods of struggle, you know, there are eventually, almost inevitably, uh, you know, times of prosperity. So I hope that time is coming back for you soon. And finally, to quote some Doc Holliday from Tombstone, since you like that, there's no normal life, Wyatt. It's just laugh. Get on with it. I uh, hope things get a lot better for you, man. Uh, Hail Nimrod. Now, a bit of a, a stat disagreement from discerning sucker Landon Forsyth. Forsyth. Landon writes, you, re you recently reiterated a common misconception that there is statistical evidence for systemic racism in law enforcement because the ratio of blacks killed by police is higher than the ratio of other races. However, police violence is a function of the frequency of encounters with violent offenders. In 2018, slightly over 50% of homicides and robberies were committed by African-Americans. The theory is that this statistic has more to do with unevenly distributed, distributed socioeconomic classes that resulted from America's history of slavery rather than current racial views. Obviously, the murder of George Floyd was heinous, but that event does not represent a systemic issue. Your loyal spaces are landed. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, interesting correction, Landon. Yeah, some good stuff there. Uh, it could, it could represent a systemic issue. It doesn't necessarily not. Uh, I, I do love that you hit the head or hit the nail on the head when you say, quote, unevenly distributed socioeconomic classes that resulted from America's history of slavery. This is an important note why I wanted to include this. To just focus on possible racism within America's police force does not solve current racial problems in society. Racism and historic socioeconomic inequality has to be addressed at a variety of different levels if the playing field is ever going to be equalized. 
Right, we need to look at a lot more than just law enforcement. We need to look at our education and social programs, subsidized daycare, cost of higher education, quality of public education, affordable health care, you know, for all uh, uh, working class Americans of all colors, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do I think there's a uh, uh, racism, you know, within law enforcement? Yeah, but maybe no more than there is in society at large. That's the narrative that seems to be a little bit lost right now. I, I truly hope all the public discourse about all this helps save black lives, help save blue lives. I hope more communities can feel uh, better protected by law enforcement and not afraid of law enforcement. And I hope that more black Americans can, can be viewed as fellow equal citizens first and not as criminals or potential criminals. Uh, thank you, Landon. Okay, two more little quick ones. A sweet shout out request from Carrying Meat Sack, Jen Featheringham. Jen writes, hey, Dan, my husband, Andrew, is a space lizard, huge fan of your podcast and stand up. His 30th birthday is June 18th. I know it would make him one super happy meat sack if you could give him a birthday shout out during one of your time suck recordings this month. It's been a long past few months with our spring wedding reception being canceled, your stand-up show in Boston being canceled, his 30th birthday celebrations being canceled due to COVID-19. A shout out from one of his favorite comedians would be the coolest surprise ever for him at a time like this. Thanks for the laughs and learning you bring us each week. Can't wait to see the new stand-up once COVID allows. Thank you, Jen. Happy birthday, Andrew. Holy shit. What a year, huh? Sorry to hear about your wedding. Uh, I hope you two at least have been getting in a lot of engagement fucking. You know what I mean? During your time at home. Hey, Lucifina, come on. Uh, seriously, though, I look forward to seeing you two down the road. And again, happy birthday. And now one more quick silly one from Silly Goose Sucker, Rich Gardell. This just cracked me up. Rich writes, you son of a bitch, you got me. I take two weeks away from Time Suck to, scare, to catch up on Scared to Death. And less than 12 minutes into Genghis Khan, I'm Googling honey bushes. Gotcha, Rich. I love it. I love, I love thinking about you being like, honey bushes? How the hell have I never heard of honey bushes? I didn't know honey could grow on. Oh, son of a bitch. Uh, thank you for the laugh, Rich, and thank you for the message, everyone. Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everybody. Uh, don't eat anyone. Also, be careful out in the woods of North America because apparently it is uh, chock full of monsters. Uh, but mostly... Focus on not eating anyone. And of course, keep on sucking. Dude. Hey, hey, man. I, actually, I got to run. Uh, all I can think about this episode is getting home and uh, eating my kids. Oh, fair enough. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.